to speak on today this very vital topic perplexing the mind of many non-Muslims and having a lot of faith in the minds of Muslims but awaiting for some a little bit more conviction. This topic is the Quran God's word will be handled today by our speaker and of course it would be as usual be followed by the open question and answer session. Brothers and sisters, please welcome Dr. Zakir Naik. Alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalam. Ala Rasulillah wa ala ali wa sahbihi ajma'in. Amma abad. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Afalai dadabbaruna al-Quran. Walauqana minindi gairillah. Labujudu fi iktalafan kaseera. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Sanurihim ayatina fi al-afaqi. Wa fi anfusihim. Hatta yatabayyana lahum anna ul-haq. Awalam yakfi bi rabbika. Anna wala kulli shayin shaheed. Rabbishali Sadri, Wayasilli Amri, Wahlul Ugdatamil Lesani, Yafka Hukauli. My respected elders and my dear brothers and sisters, I welcome all of you with Islamic greetings. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace, mercy, and blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of Almighty God, be on all of you. The topic of this evening's talk of mine is, is the Quran God's word? Many people have a misconception that Islam is a new religion that came into existence 1400 years ago and Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the founder of this religion. In fact, Islam is there since time immemorial, since man set foot on this earth. And Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is not the founder of this religion, but he is the last and final messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of Almighty God, to whom was revealed the last and final message, the glorious Quran. All the messengers that came before the last and final messenger, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, they were only sent for a particular group of people. And this message was supposed to be followed only by that group of people for a limited time period. Since all the other revelations were meant only for a particular group of people and was meant for a particular time period, the miracles performed by the earlier messengers, by the earlier prophets, for example, the parting of the sea, giving life to the dead, it satisfied the people of that time. But today, we cannot go back in time to examine 
these miracles, to verify these miracles. But Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was not sent only for the Muslims or only for the Arabs. The glorious Quran says in Surah Ambiya, chapter number 21, verse number 107. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةَ لِلْعَالَمِينَ That we have sent thee not but as a mercy to all the creatures, as a mercy to the whole of humanity, as a mercy to all the worlds. Since Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was not sent only for the Muslims and the Arabs, but he was sent for the whole of humanity, and he was the last messenger, the miracle that was given to him is not time-bound. The miracle that was given to him should satisfy the people at that time, even today, as well as till eternity. Since he is the last messenger, that's the reason the miracle given to him should satisfy and be examinable till eternity. Though Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he has done and performed Hundreds of miracles, but he never emphasized them. And we Muslims, we mainly boast of his ultimate miracle, that is the glorious Quran, which is the last and final revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of Almighty God, to the last and final messenger, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And it is a miracle of all times. It could satisfy the people of that time. It can even satisfy today until the last day. It could be verified and examined that time. It can even be verified today. And inshallah, it can be verified and examined even till the last day. That's the reason it is the miracle of miracles. As far as the Quran is concerned, any human being who has the slightest knowledge of the Quran, irrespective whether he is a Muslim or non-Muslim, he will agree that the Quran was first recited by a man by the name of Muhammad, peace be upon him, who was born in the city of Arabia, that is Mecca. There is no difference of opinion amongst anyone who has the slightest knowledge of the Quran irrespective whether the Muslim or non-Muslim. As far as the origin of this Quran is concerned, there can be various allegations, replies, right or wrong. All of them can be broadly classified into three categories. The first, that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously the author of the Quran. The second category, the Quran was written by Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who learned it from other sources, or he copied or plagiarized from other religious scriptures. And the third category is, that the Quran has got no human origin, no human source. And it is, word by word, the revelation from Almighty God. Any answers you have for the origin of the Quran 
can be broadly classified into these three categories. They can be 100 answers. All of them will fit in these three categories. Today, let us examine and let us verify the various answers given by different human beings. Time will not permit us to deal with all of them, since the time is limited. I will pick up the more famous and the more important answers given by different human beings. First, we'll discuss, can Muhammad, peace be upon him, be the author of the Quran? Whether consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously. It is rather a tragedy that a person disagrees when a person disclaims that he is not responsible for any great work, whether literary or whether scientific. But this is exactly what the Orientalists and the critics of Islam do when they say, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was the author of the Quran. Never ever has the Prophet ever claimed that he was the author of the Quran. Not even a single word of the Quran. He never claimed it. Yet, when he disclaimed that he was not the author, and the Quran happens to be a masterpiece in the work of Arabic, so why will a person disclaim the responsibility of a work which is a masterpiece? Why should he lie? And we know from history, from his youth till the day he claimed prophethood, at the age of 40 years, never has a single lie reported to have been said by Muhammad, peace be upon him. History never reports a single lie. And before he claimed prophethood, he was known for his truthfulness, his honesty, and chastity, and he was given the title Al-Amin, the trustworthy by friends and foes alike. And there are several examples. Even those people, after the prophet claimed prophethood, and they said that he was lying, yet his enemies, his foes, they kept their valuables with the prophet for safety. And this is known when the prophet migrated from Makkah to Medina, and he told his nephew, Hazrat Ali, may Allah be pleased with him, that give these valuables to the rightful owners. Even his foes, even after they said he lied, yet they trusted him and kept the valuables with him. Why? And we have the example that Abu Sufyan, who was the chief of one of the tribes of Makkah, when he went to Emperor Heracles and asked him for support against the Prophet, and when the Emperor asked him that, do you know of any instance in which the Prophet lied? Or has he done any injustice? And Abu Sufyan, even though he was the enemy of the Prophet that time, he had to reply, no. So why should a person with such honesty and trust and chastity, why should he lie? Let us analyze the various claims made by Orientalists and the critics of Islam against Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. We'll just discuss the major ones. 
One of the claims made by the critics of Islam is that the Prophet, he lied that he was not the author of the Quran and said it was Almighty God for material gains. We know that there are many men who claim to be prophets, who claim to be preachers, who claim to be saints in order to lead a luxurious life. And we have hundreds and thousands of examples in this world today also. But if we see the lifestyle of the prophet, he led a more luxurious life before he claimed prophethood than after he claimed prophethood. He was married at the age of 25 to a rich lady by the name of Khatija, may Allah be pleased with her. And his life after claiming prophethood was unenviable. So if he did it for money, his life should be better after claiming prophethood. Like we see today, those people who claim to be prophets and saints and sages. Furthermore, we have records in several Sahih Hadith, including the Hadith narrated by An-Nawi and Yad Salin, Hadith number 492, that one of his wives, Hazrat Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, she said that there were times when fire was not lit in the house for a month or two, indicating that food was not cooked for a month or two in the house. And we only survived on dates and water, and sometimes milk given by the neighbors. There are various instances, and even verse mentioned in the Quran, that the life was so simple, though he had all the power, he was the leader, he could have led the most luxurious life in the whole of Arabia. That's the reason that there was an occasion when his wives, they protested. And they said that what is the need for us to lead such a life when we can live a much comfortable life? Immediately, there was a revelation sent by Almighty God in Surah Azab, chapter number 33, verse number 29, and 29, where it says that, O Prophet, tell your consorts, tell your wives, if they care for the enjoyment of this world and the glitter of this world, I will set you free to enjoy this world and give you a handsome reward. But if you care for the life in the year after, you will be rewarded in the next life. That means the wives, they objected that why should we lead such a simple life when we can lead at least a much better life? And immediately the wahi was revealed. But natural wives of the Prophet, then they asked for forgiveness. And they preferred the life in the year after than this world. We have the example in the hadith of Riyadh Salihin, hadith number 465 and 466, where the Bilal, may Allah be said that whenever the Prophet received any gifts, he never kept it for himself. Neither did he keep it for the future, and he gave it away to the poor people. And it is mentioned in this very same Quran, in Surah Baqarah, chapter number 2, verse number 79. Now, 
There were high possibilities that one day he would have been exposed and he would be cursing himself in the same book. That woe to those who write the book with their own hands and then say, this is from Allah. If he would have written the Quran and attributed to Almighty God, would have ever mentioned such a verse in the Quran. There are some critics who say that maybe the Prophet attributed the Quran though he was the author because he wanted fame, status, glory, as well as leadership. According to Michael H. Hart, he writes in his book, the 100 most influential persons in the history of humankind. And he analyzes all the human beings from Adam, peace be upon him, till the present time. And undisputedly, he puts Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as number one, as being the most influential person in the history of humankind. So if he wanted to become a leader, he didn't have to claim that the Quran was from God, if he actually was the author. And Michael H. Hart, he gives reasons for each person, why did he give him number one, number two, number three, etc. And at the end of the biography says that it was the indisputable secular and religious influence of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that makes him the undisputable number one person to have the most influence in human history. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, if he wanted glory, fame, power, leadership, he was so eloquent, he had all the qualities, he did not have to falsely attribute the Quran to Almighty God. He had all the abilities. And if we analyze logically, any person who wants power, glory, leadership, fame, status, along with him is attached good food, fancy clothes, magnificent places, monumental palaces, guards, etc. But if you see the lifestyle of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he mended his own clothes, he repaired his own shoes, he milked the goat, and he did his own household work. He sat on the floor and ate. When he went to the marketplace, he didn't have any colorful guards. He was an example of simplicity and humbleness. And anyone who invited him, even the poor people he used to accept their invitation and he used to eat whatever was served to him. So much so that his enemies, they pass a remark which is mentioned in the Quran, in Surah Tawbah, chapter number 9, verse number 61. Oh, he listens to everyone. His enemies, they were angry. What kind of a person is this? He listens to each and everyone, even the poor people. And 
There are many instances and occasions which are recorded in history and in the Ahadith. And one such instance is there was a representative from the pagan Arabs by the name of Uduba. And he comes to the Prophet and says that we will give you all the wealth in Arabia, make you the richest man of Arabia. We will even make you the leader. If you want, we'll make you the king. Only thing we want from you is that you should stop spreading this message that there is one God. If the Prophet wanted leadership, if he wanted to become the king, he would have accepted this offer very easy. There are several examples. We have the example that when the pagan Arabs, they told his uncle Abu Talib that ask an effort to give up the message of universal brotherhood, of the oneness of God. He replies to his uncle that even if they put the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand, I will not stop my mission. I will not stop spreading this message until the day I die or whatever Allah wills. There was a time when his son Ibrahim, he died, and it coincided with an eclipse. So immediately the people said, ah, this is a sign from God. The sun is mourning because a person has died, the son of Muhammad, peace be upon him. Immediately the prophet replied, and he said that the sun and the moon they are signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They do not eclipse because of the birth or the death of any human being. If he wanted fame and power, it was a very good opportunity. He could have said, yes, because my son died, we see the heavens are mourning. But he didn't do that because he's a truthful person. Some of the critics, they say that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, knows Billah. He attributed the Quran to Almighty God because he wanted to unite the Arabs. It's known as the Arab unity and liberation theory. The various theories propounded by the critics and the Orientalists. There is not a single verse in the Quran which singles out and speaks exclusively of the Arab unity. Not a single verse. Exclusively talking about the unity or the liberation of the Arabs. The Quran has the concept of Ummah. That's the nation of the whole humankind. And the criteria for any human being to be superior to any other human being, it's not caste, it's not color, it's not wealth, it's not sex, but it is taqwa. And this is mentioned in the Quran, in Surah Hujurat, chapter number 49, verse number 13, where Allah says, Ya ayyuhan nasu inna khalaqnaakum min zakin wa unsa wa ja'alnaakum shu'ubaw wa qaba'ila li ta'arafu inna karmukum inda loyatkaakum inna lo'alimun khabir. O humankind! We have created you from a single pair of male and female and have divided you into nations and tribes so that you may recognize one another, not that you may despise one another. And the most honored in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the person who has taqwa. The criteria for judgment in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's not caste, color, creed, sex, wealth, but it is taqwa, it is God consciousness, it's piety. It's righteousness. There are many verses in the Quran in order to stand for truthfulness. It even says you can do that even if you have to go against relatives. 
there can be a dispute between the father and son, between husband and wife, even between relatives, if you are fight for the truth. Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Tawbah, chapter number 9, verse number 24, Kul in kaan abaukum. Say whether it be for your fathers. Wa'abnaukum. Or your sons. Wa'ikhwanukum. Or your brothers. Wa'azwajukum. Or your spouses. Wa'ashiratukum. Or your relatives. Wa'amwalunik taraf tumuha. Wa'tijaratun takshawna kasada. Wa'masakinun taraf zawnaha. The wealth that you've amassed. The business in which you deal. The house in which you live. Allah says that if you love all these eight things, your fathers, your sons, your brothers, your spouses, your relatives, the business in which you deal, the house in which you live, the wealth you have amassed, Allah continues. Habba ilaykum min Allahi wa rasulihi wa jihadin fi sabilihi. If you love all these things more than Allah, His Rasul, and doing jihad, striving the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah says, Fatarabbasu, wait. Hatta yakti Allahu bi amri. Wait until Allah brings his decision to you. Until Allah brings his destruction to you. And Allah guides not the Fasik people. So if the Prophet wanted unity amongst the Arabs, why did he mention such a verse in the Quran? It's further mentioned in the Quran, in Surah Al-Imran, chapter 3, verse 103. Hold to the rope of Allah strongly and be not divided. So here, the Prophet is talking about the unity of the believers. He is not talking about the unity of the Arabs. And if he wanted to unite the Arabs, he could have easily taken the leadership and become the leader and the king and united the Arabs easily. There are verses in the Quran which are contrary to this theory. It's mentioned in the Quran. In Surah Al-Imran, chapter number 3, verse number 43, it says, And behold, the angel said, O Mary, That Allah has chosen thee and purified thee and purified thee above the women of all nations. Imagine the Quran says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, peace be upon him, who was a Jewess, she is chosen as the woman above all the women in the world. If he wanted unity among the Arabs, he could have chosen his mother, or his wife, or his daughter, any Arab woman, as the woman above all the nations. But he goes out of the way to say, Mother Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, peace be upon him, is the woman chosen above the women of all nations. And the reason is, it's immediately mentioned in the next verse, in Surah Imran, chapter 3, verse 45, that it is nothing but an inspiration from Almighty God. He has no choice. He has no choice to agree or disagree, because this is a wahi from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So surely, there are various other verses in the Quran, several times, including Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 47, which says that, don't you remember the favors which we have bestowed on the children of Israel, on Bani Israel? So all these verses of the Quran, if Prophet Muhammad knows Billah, he was the author of the Quran, God forbid, then why should he mention such verses in the Quran? 
The other allegation or theory is known as the theory for moral reformation. The Prophet attributed the Quran to Almighty God because he wanted to reform the people. Now, why should a person lie? Because he wants to reform the people morally. If you want to be truthful, you cannot lie to be truthful. The means should match with the goal. And the Quran says in Surah Anam, chapter number 6, verse number 93, that who can be a more wicked person than a person who invents a lie against Almighty God and says he has received the inspiration when he has not? There were chances that one day, later on, the Prophet would have been exposed and he would be calling himself a wicked person in his own book, if you are the author, knows Billah. God forbid. It's mentioned in Surah Hakka, chapter 69, verse number 44, 45, 46, 47, that if the Prophet was to invent anything in our name, we would surely hold him by his right hand and cut off the very artery of his heart, and no one will be able to save him from our wrath. Allah sling the Quran, that if the Prophet or if any other human being had to invent a lie or a saying in the name of Allah, then Almighty God would have held the Prophet with his right hand and would have cut the very artery of his heart and no one would be able to save him. There are other people who say, knows Billah, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you are suffering from mythomania. This is a psychological disorder that a person mentions a lie and he believes it is the truth. Mythomaniac is a person who tells a lie and he believes that it is a fact. And a psychologist, he treats the person by giving him more facts. Suppose a person says that I am a king. The psychiatrist will not say that you are crazy. The psychiatrist will say, you are a king, where is the queen? So the mythomaniac will say, the queen has gone to a mother's place. Where is the minister? The minister has died. Where are your guards? The more you keep on posing facts, then he says, I think I'm not the king. And if you analyze the Quran, the Quran mentions about facts. It keeps on giving facts and figures, facts, mentioning about historical things. So the Quran is a treatment for mythomaniac. It's not a book written by a mythomaniac, knows Billah. Furthermore, there are some critics who say, and they believe in the religious illusion theory, saying that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he wrote the Quran from his knowledge from his experience, from various events and surroundings without knowing that he was actually the author of the Quran. Some say that knows Billah, God forbid, he was a crazy person. Now, no person who has an illusion or no person who's crazy can be so firm and accurate constantly for a period of 22 and a half years. The Quran wasn't revealed in one shot. 
on one day, or at one moment, it was revealed over a period of 22 and a half years. No person who has an illusion or has a visionary can be so constant for a period of 22 and a half years. And the various occasions, for example, in Surah Kahf, chapter number 18, verse number 22, when the people asked about the story of the people of the cave, or about Zulkarnain, he said, I will answer you tomorrow. But the Prophet could not give the answer tomorrow. He kept on postponing it for 15 days until a revelation came in Surah Kaaf, chapter number 18, verse number 23, 24, that, O oh, Prophet, never say, I will do tomorrow without adding, Inshallah, if Allah wills. Imagine for 15 days, the Prophet was in tension, he was sad, that why isn't the wahi coming? So then Allah sends the wahi. That do not say, I will say tomorrow without saying, Inshallah, that if Allah wills, if God wills. And if he wrote it from his mind, he would have immediately given the answer or given the answer next day. So because there was a delay, many people accepted Islam and they realized that this cannot be a handiwork of a human being. It has to be a revelation. And that verse is included even today in the Quran. If a person who writes the Quran, why should he mention such a verse in the Quran? Indicating that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon Allah, was not crazy, and he had no illusion. There are another group of people who say the Prophet knows Allah was crazy. Then we prove him. How can he be crazy? Then they say no, that he was a liar. And we prove he's not a liar. Then they say he was both. A person can either be crazy or a liar, but he can never be both. Well, a crazy person, when you ask him a question, he immediately gives a reply whether logical or not. A liar will think and try and give an answer which is correct. So both are contradicting. And we know that the prophet was neither of the three, neither crazy, neither liar, neither both. So surely, with all these replies, we can surely realize that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was not the author of the Quran. Let's discuss the second category, that the prophet, he learned it from other sources, or he copied or plagiarized from the other religious scriptures. There are various allegations made by non-Muslims and the critics of Islam that the Prophet, he learned the Quran from a Roman blacksmith who was just living in the outskirts of Makkah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a revelation in Surah Nahal, chapter number 16, verse number 103. We know that they say that you learned it from someone, but do they not know that his language is foreign? And this Quran is Arabic pure. The Roman blacksmith, he could hardly speak Arabic. You're the foreigner. And you're saying that Prophet learned it from him. And this Quran is a book written in Arabic, which is so pure and eloquent. It is like someone saying that a Chinese man who does not know English, he has taught Shakespeare to write the book. There are other allegations that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he learned the matter of the Quran from Warqa. Warqa in the Nawfil was the relative of his wife, Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her. But when we read history, we come to know that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, met Warqa only twice in his life. Once, before he claimed prophethood, when he was worshipping the Kaaba, and he kissed the forehead of the Prophet, 
and the other time when the first wahi was revealed to the Prophet, and when the Prophet was scared and shivering, his wife takes him to Warqa, only on two occasions. And immediately after the first wahi was revealed, the first revelation was given, three years later he dies. And this Quran continued to be revealed for 22 and a half years. So imagine, Prophet met him only twice, how could he learn from him? And he died three years after meeting him the last time, after the way he started. So surely, he could not have learned from Warqa. He was a Christian Arab. He was Arab, but he had converted to Christianity. But surely, he could not have learned from him. There are some people who say that the Prophet, he learned about the Quran from the Jews and Christians when he spent time with them. We know that the Prophet gave da'wah to the Jews and Christians after going to Medina, 13 years after the revelation started. So surely he could not have learned from them. And in the discussions, it was the Prophet who was giving them information, not the vice versa. And many of the people who he discussed with, many of them accepted Islam. So it was the Prophet who was helping them, not they were helping Prophet. Furthermore, some people say, that may be learned from people outside Arabia. And we know that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he went outside Makkah before claiming prophethood only thrice. Once to Medina at the age of six. Second time between the age of nine and 11, he goes along with his uncle to Syria for a business trip. And he goes at the age of 25 to Syria when he takes the caravan of Khadija. May Allah be pleased with her. He only goes outside Makkah thrice. So to say that he went outside thrice and he learned everything of the Quran in these three occasions is absurd. Furthermore, we realize it's illogical that the Prophet could have learned from somebody else because he was so busy. He was always surrounded by the people. He was always kept busy by the people meeting him, so much so that the Quran says that give the Prophet a rest. So if he met some people, surely this thing would have been exposed in history. And the enemies of the Prophet were always keeping a watch on him. If he really met someone secretly, surely he would have been exposed. Furthermore, one historical fact that the Prophet was illiterate is sufficient to dispel all these theories that he copied from somewhere else. And Allah says in the Quran, in Surah An-Kabut, chapter number 29, verse number 48, that you were not able to recite any book before this, before this book came, nor were you able to transcribe any other book before this. Or else, the talkers of vanity would have doubted. That means, Almighty God, who has all the wisdom, he knew that people will allege that this Quran has been written by the Prophet. So he saw to it that the last and final messenger, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was an illiterate, was Ummi, not even giving a point to the critics, which is hardly big enough to even hang a fly. Allah is not even giving a small chance to the talkers of vanity, even giving the slightest excuse that someone would say that the Prophet wrote the Quran. And it's mentioned 
in Surah Araf, chapter number 7, verse number 157, it says that they follow the unlettered prophet who is mentioned in the law and gospels, mentioned in the scriptures. Here it says that the prophet would be unlettered, illiterate. And we find that there are several prophecies of Prophet Muhammad in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament several times mentioned in the Bible. And it's clearly mentioned in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 29, verse number 12, that the book will be given to thee who is not learned. And when it will be said to him, pray, read this, he will say, I am not learned. And this is exactly what happened when the first revelation, Wahi, came to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and when Archangel Gabriel said, Ikra, read, he replied, Ma'ana Bikhari, I am not learned. So surely, the Prophet, being an illiterate, could not have copied from somewhere else. History tells us today that the first Arabic version of the Bible, the Arabic version, translation of the Bible did not exist when the prophet was alive. The first version of the Old Testament was written by R. Sadion Gyos in 900 CE, about more than 250 years after the death of the prophet. And the first Arabic New Testament was written or translated by Erpenius in the year 1616, about 1,000 years after the demise of the prophet. So where is the question of the prophet copying from the Bible? There are many people who say that the prophet knows Billah. He copied the Quran from the Bible. And we do agree that there are similarities between the Bible and the Quran. Now, just because there is similarities between the Bible and the Quran, that does not mean the Quran has been copied from the Bible. There is a possibility that both of them have a common source. And we know that the source of all the revelations was one true Almighty God. Suppose a student A, in the examination, he copies from the textbook of science. And student B also copies from the textbook of science. That does not mean B has copied from A or A has copied from B. Both copied from the original source, the textbook of science. Similarly, the source of all the revelations, it is Almighty God. And furthermore, if anyone copies from someone, he will never write the name of the person who he has copied from. The Quran gives due respect to Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. If he had copied from the Bible, why should he give respect to Jesus, peace be upon him? If a person copies from his neighbor, he will not mention that my neighbor is a good person or my neighbor is very intelligent in science. So if the Prophet copied from the Bible, why does he give due respect to Moses, Jesus, peace be upon him, and all the prophets? If we say that the Quran has been copied from the Bible because there are common points, then we can say that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, knows Billah. He has copied from the Old Testament because there are similarities between the Old and the New Testament. We know that the similarities are because both have a common source that is one Almighty God. We come to know that in Islam, there are four revelations. The Torah, the Zabur, the Injil, and the Quran. The Torah is the Wahid, the revelation which was given to Moses, peace be upon him. The Zabur is the Wahid, the revelation given to David, peace be upon him. Injil is the Wahid, the revelation given to Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. And the Quran is the last and final revelation which was 
given to the last and final messenger prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. Even though all the revelation, all the scriptures that came before the Quran, they have not maintained the pure form. They have been corrupted. They have been changed. Yet, there are many parts of the scriptures which yet are the same. So if you have to check what is correct, you have to check with the Furqan, that is the glorious Quran. If it matches the Quran, we have no problem in accepting that portion of that scripture to be the word of God. There may be many human beings who may not be knowing or having a knowledge of the Quran or the Bible. So how can we decipher which of the two is right or who has copied from whom? The best test is the test of science. If we put these two scriptures to the test of science, we will know the difference of chalk and cheese. When we read superficially, we come to know that the Bible and the Quran are the same. But if we do a research or we analyze it, we come to know that the difference of chalk and cheese. When we read the Bible, it's mentioned in the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter number one, that Almighty God, he created the heaven and the earth in six days. And these six days are 24 days, mentioned in the Bible. The Quran, too, speaks about the creation of the universe and says, Almighty God has created the heaven and the earth in six ayams. Ayam is plural of yom. One of the meaning of yom is a 24-hour day, but the other Arabic meaning of yom is a long period, an epoch. Today, scientists, they say that our universe was created in billions of years. So to say it was created in six 24-hour days is wrong. But the scientists have got no objection with the Quran when the Quran says the heavens and the earth were created in six ayams. That is, six long periods without defining them to be strict 24 hours. Furthermore, it's mentioned in the Bible in the first book, book of Genesis, chapter number one, verse number three to five, that Almighty God, he created the day and the night on the first day. And he created the light on the first day. It later says in Genesis chapter number one, verse 14 to 19, the source of light, that is, the stars and the sun, they were created on the fourth day. Imagine, the effect is created on the first day and the cause of the effect on the fourth day. The sun was created and the stars on the fourth day and the light from the sun and the star was created on the first day. It's illogical. How can the effect come before the source? Quran 2 speaks about the creation of the heaven and the earth, but does not give this unscientific sequence. Furthermore, it's mentioned in the first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter number one, verse number nine to 13, that the earth was created on the third day. And Genesis chapter number one, verse number 14 to 19, that the sun and the moon was created on the fourth day. We know from science that the earth and the moon are the part of the parent body that is the sun. So to say that the earth was created before the parent body, the sun, is unscientific. The Quran too speaks about creation of the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the earth, but it says it was created simultaneously. Imagine Prophet Muhammad copied from the Bible and he changed the sequence. He says, no, both were created together. Bible further says, in the book of Genesis, chapter number one, verse number nine to 13, that 
Almighty God created the vegetables and the vegetations on the third day. And Genesis chapter number 1, verse 14 to 19, he created the sun on the fourth day. Scientifically, it's not possible that the vegetation can survive without sunlight. It's totally unscientific. Furthermore, the Bible says in Genesis chapter number 1, verse number 16, that Almighty God created two great lights. The greater light, the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. So the Bible says the light of the sun as well as the light of the moon is its own light. The Bible says the light of the moon has its own light. But the Quran says in Surah Furqan, chapter number 25, verse number 61, the light of the moon is not its own light, it's a reflected light. So imagine the prophet copied from the Bible and he made corrections. Not the own light, it is a reflected light. It's not humanly possible. Only one who has this knowledge is Almighty God. There are several examples, we can give a talk only on this. And I had a debate with Dr. William Campbell on the topic, the Quran and the Bible in the light of science. And there, I've mentioned many unscientific points mentioned in the Bible. Time does not permit me to go into details. The various unscientific things mentioned in the Bible, which is not mentioned in the Quran. For example, according to the Bible, Adam, peace be upon him. He came into existence about 5,800 years before. Science tells us that the human beings came into existence millions of years before. The Quran too speaks about Adam and Salam, but does not give a date. The Bible says in Genesis, chapter number 6, 7, as well as 8, about Noah and the flood. And it says that the full world was submerged underwater. At the time of Noah, that is approximately 21st, 22nd century BC. Quran too speaks about Noah Salam, but it does not give it a date. It even speaks about the flood, but it says it was a localized flood, only it flooded the Ummah, the people of Nuh Salam, not the full world. Today, archaeological evidence shows us that the 11th dynasty of Egypt, as well as the 3rd dynasty of Babylon, they existed without interruption since the 21st, 22nd century BC. So archaeological evidence says that what is mentioned in the Bible is totally wrong. There are various examples, we can give hundreds, time does not permit. So surely, this Quran, has not been copied from the Bible. Neither it has been forged. As mentioned in the Quran in Surah Sajda, chapter number 32, verse number 1 and 2, it says that, do they say he forged it? Nay, it is the truth from the Lord. So that he may give admonition to the people to whom no warner has come in the past. So surely, we can undoubtedly say that neither Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon the author of the Quran, neither did he copy or plagiarize or learn it from any other source. Furthermore, we know that the glorious Quran, unlike other religious scriptures, or unlike other story books which are written by human beings, it has a particular beginning. Once upon a time, foxes and the grapes, once upon a time, lamp and the wolf, that the Bible says, in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word. 
Typical. And every storybook will have a sequence. Sequence, you know, a beginning and end in a serial order. But the Quran is unique. The first verse to reveal of the Quran Iqra is not the first chapter, chapter number one. It is chapter 96, Surah Iqra, Surah Allah, verse number one. It doesn't have a sequence. It does not start with Adam alayhi salam, and then it continues and goes to Noah alayhi salam and Musa alayhi salam, then Jesus peace be upon him, then Muhammad peace be upon him. No. It has a unique sequence. It does not work like a human mind. Because the author is not a human being. Furthermore, there are unknown things mentioned in the Quran. Along with it, there's a challenge saying that you do not know it. For example, it's mentioned in the Quran in Surah Hud, chapter number 11, verse 49, saying that you did not know this before, neither the people amongst you knew it. It gives an information and says, Oh, Prophet, you did not know it, not even your people knew it. It's mentioned in Surah Yusuf, chapter number 12, verse number 2, that none amongst you knew it, neither the Prophet knew it. Imagine the Prophet saying, when the Quran was revealed in Arabia, he's telling to the Arabs, neither I knew it, neither you did not know it. Any Arab could have got up, he could have said that I'm an Arab and I know this answer. This I knew it before. The Quran mentions many incidences, many things about Zulkarnain, about the story of the caves, many information, and says you did not know. Which human being who can write this book and say you did not know it before? Indicating this does not have a human origin. Furthermore, some people say that the Quran is a deception. When we ask them, what is the origin of the deception? They give no answer. Can you point out a single deception in the Quran? They cannot answer. So how can you say something which you cannot logically prove? There are some people who tell a false thing, who make a false statement, and they fool themselves by sticking to it. For example, suppose there's a person who thinks Mr. A is an enemy. He thinks. He does not have any logical proof. He has no reason, but he thinks, he falsely believes that Mr. A, he is my enemy. The moment he meets Mr. A, that person starts behaving like an enemy to Mr. A. Now, Mr. A being a human being, he retaliates. Why is he treating me as an enemy? He retaliates. The moment Mr. A retaliates, the person says, ah, didn't I tell you? He is my enemy. See, they are retaliating to me. So you make a false statement, and you fool yourself by sticking to that statement. This is what the critics of Islam do. They make a false statement, and they fool themselves by sticking to it. Furthermore, the Quran, it believes in reasoning. And there are several verses which talk about reasoning. You can analyze it. You can discuss the matter of the Quran. Several places, including Surah Ibrahim, chapter number 14, verse 52 that here is the message for mankind. Let them take warning therefrom. Let them know there is one God. Let the men of understanding take heed. Many Muslims think that the Quran discourages reasoning. It discourages arguing with people. It discourages 
discussing about the Quran with others and religion with others. In fact, the Quran encourages that you have to discuss with the other human beings. You have to argue with the other human beings. It's mentioned in the Quran in Surah Nahal, chapter number 16, verse number 125. Invite all to the way of their Lord with wisdom and beautiful preaching and argue with them and reason with them in the ways that are best and most gracious. Quran encourages reasoning and arguing and discussing, but with hikmah and husna in ways that are best and most gracious. There is something known as exhausting the alternatives. There's a concept known as exhausting the alternatives. The Quran says, this is from God. If you don't believe in it, you tell me what it is from. You tell me from where it is. The Quran says, this book is from God. This book is from Allah. If you disagree, you give me the answer. So someone will say, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he wrote the Quran. And we proved earlier he didn't write. He lied. Why did he lie? Because of material gains. And we proved it's not possible. Maybe for power and glory. And we proved that's not possible. Maybe for unity of the Arabs. And we proved that's not possible. Someone will say, okay, did for moral reformation. And we proved it's not possible. Guess, guess. Okay, he copied from the Bible. And we proved it is wrong. Guess. When all your guesses are proved wrong, that means the Quran requires to be heard. It requires respect. You have to believe in it that this book, Quran, is from Almighty God. And Quran says in several places that this book is a revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, including Surah Jasha, chapter number 45, verse number 1 and 2, where it says, Ha Meem, Tanzeerul Kitabu bin Allahi, Azizul Hakim that ha meem, this is a revelation of the book from the Lord of the worlds, exalted in power and full of wisdom. The Quran says in several places that this book is the book of Almighty God. It's mentioned in Surah Anam, chapter number 6, verse number 19. Surah Anam, chapter number 6, verse number 93. It's mentioned in Surah Yusuf, chapter number 12, verse number 1 and 2. In Surah Taha, chapter number 20, verse number 113. It is mentioned in Surah Sajda, chapter number 32, verse number 1 to 3. In Surah Yasin, chapter number 36, verse number 1 to 3. It's mentioned in Surah Azumur, chapter number 39, verse number 1. In Surah Ghafir, chapter number 40, verse number 2. It's mentioned in Surah Jasha, chapter number 45, verse number 2. It is mentioned in Surah Rahman, chapter number 55, verse number 1 and 2. It's mentioned in Surah Insan, chapter number 76, verse number 23, that this book, the glorious Quran, is from none other but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is known as exhausting the alternatives. What you have, you give. You try it out. If you fail to prove it logically, then you have to agree with what is mentioned. As far as the scientists are concerned, they have a different philosophy. They have a different approach. This approach is known as the falsification test. The scientists, they are so busy. There are so many new theories coming about. They don't have time to analyze it. They say, if you have a theory, first give us a way to prove your theory wrong. If you come about with a new concept, first give us a way, show us a way how to prove your theory wrong. 
Albert Einstein, in the beginning of the 20th century, he proposed certain things. How does the universe work? Along with it, he gave three ways how to prove his theory wrong. The scientist, they examined for six years, and then they agreed it was right. Now, anyone who gives a falsification test, it deserves to be heard. It doesn't mean the person is great or the work is great. It may be right, may be wrong. But anyone who gives the falsification test, it deserves to be heard. There are innumerable falsification tests mentioned in the Quran. You want to prove the Quran wrong? It is very easy. You try it out. Very easy. There are some falsification tests which was meant only for that time when the Quran was revealed. Some is meant for today. Some it will be meant till the last day. I'll just mention about four or five because of lack of time. One very good example is about the story of Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab, he was the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad and he was given this nickname, Abu Lahab, the father of the flame, and he was one of the staunchest enemies of the Prophet. Whenever he saw anyone speaking with the Prophet, he used to wait. Moment the Prophet left, he used to go to the man and ask him, what did the Prophet say? Did he say black? It is white. Did he say day? No, it is night. He used to speak the opposite. He was one of the staunchest enemies of the Prophet. He went out of the way. He even lied many a times just to prove the Prophet wrong. Now there's a surah in the Quran by the name Surah Lahab, chapter number 111, which all of us know very well. It's recited many times in the Salat, etc. In this surah, it is mentioned that Abu Lahab and his wife, they will burn in the hellfire, indicating they will never become Muslims. They will never ever accept Islam. Now, this surah was revealed about 10 years before the death of Abu Lahab. When this surah was revealed, only thing Abu Lahab had to do was accept Islam and the Quran would have been proved wrong. Not actually. Many of his companions who were his friends in the span of 10 years, they accepted Islam. Abu Lahab, later on after 10 years, he died in the Battle of Badr. 10 years he had time. The Prophet was constantly reminding him for 10 years, you accept Islam? and the Quran would be proved wrong. So easy. Only thing he had to do was say, I am a Muslim. Finish. Not that he had to behave like a Muslim. Not that he had to offer Salah. Only thing he had to say, I'm a Muslim, and finish. The Quran would have been proved wrong. So easy. Very easy. He had lied many times against the Prophet. He had to lie once again, and the Quran would have been proved wrong. But he could not, because the author of the Quran is Almighty God. He knows that Abu Lahab will never accept Islam. Falsification test. Ten years. There's another falsification test. Many, many are there. It's mentioned in Surah Baqarah, chapter number two, verse number 94 95. There was a group of Jews who were having a confrontation with the Muslims, and they say that. The last home with Allah is only for us. 
So Allah says in Surah Baqarah chapter 2 verse 94 and 95 that if they say the last home with Allah is only for them, so ask them to call for death. If you say that surely the last home with Allah, Akhirat is for you, then call for death. And the verse continues, they will never call for death. Never. Only thing these Jews had to do to prove the Quran wrong was say, I want to die. So easy. Not that they had to die. Not that they had to commit suicide. Not that they had to stab themselves. Only thing they had to say is, I want to die. So easy. To prove the Quran wrong, you want to say, I want to die. Four words, Quran will be proved wrong. Allah continues in Surah Baqarah chapter 2, verse 95 and 96. They will never call for death, even if a thousand years was given to them. So easy. So easy to prove the Quran wrong. Now, these two falsification tests were falsification tests of the past. Now you'll ask me, Brother Zakir, today I want to prove the Quran wrong. How can I prove it wrong today? Can I do it today? Yes, everyone has a chance. Allah says in Surah Maida, chapter number 5, verse number 82, that for the believers, the closest to the believers are those people who say that we are Christians. And the furthest away, the staunchest enemies are those who say we're Jews and pagans. The Quran says, the staunchest enemies of the believers are the Jews and the pagans. And the closest to the believers are those who say we are Christians. As a whole, the Quran is talking as a whole. There are many Jews who have accepted Islam. There may be few Jews who are better than the Christians, but as a whole, the Quran says, the Jews are the enemies of the Muslim as a whole. And the Christians are closer. Only thing to prove the Quran wrong, now all the Jews of the world, they get together and they plan. Okay, let's be good to the Muslim for a few years, or two, three years, better than the Christians. Quran is proved wrong. So easy. All the Jews of the world get together. For three, four years, we'll be good to the Muslims. And then we'll say this verse of the Quran, Surah Maida, chapter number five, verse number 82, is wrong. They will never do it. They will never be able to do it. Easy. There are other falsification tests. You will say, I'm not a Jew. But I want to prove the Quran wrong. How can I prove it? Allah has given everyone a chance. Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Isra, chapter number 17, verse number 88, do they say he forged it? Try and produce a Quran like unto it. I mean, do you say the Quran is forged? Try and produce a Quran like it. The same challenge is repeated in Surah Tur, chapter number 52, verse number 34. Allah challenges that try and produce a Quran like it, and you'll never be able to do it. Even if all the jinns and the humankind gather together, they will never be able to produce a lack of the Quran without the help of Allah. It's a challenge. Now Allah makes the challenge easier. Allah says in Surah Hud, chapter number 11, verse number 13, do they say he forged it? Produce 10 surahs forged like unto it. Not the whole Quran, difficult. Forget it, that challenge is difficult. Produce 10 surahs like the Quran. 
and call forth for help anyone besides Allah, and you'll never be able to do it. Allah makes the challenge easier, much easier. In Surah Yunus, chapter number 10, verse number 38, do they say he forged it? Produce one surah like it. One. Not the whole Quran. Not ten surah. One surah like it. And call forth for help anyone who you want besides Allah, and you'll not be able to do it. No response. Now, Allah makes the test much easier. Allah says in Surah Baqarah, chapter number 2, verse number 23 and 24, Allah says, وَإِن كُنْتُمْ فِي رَيْبٍ مِمَّا نَزَّلْنَا الْعَبْدِنَا And if you are in doubt, as what we have revealed to our servant from time to time, فَاتُّوا بِسُورَةِ مِمِّسْلِ Produce a surah somewhat similar to it. مِمِّسْلِ It's not misli. مِمِّسْلِ means somewhat similar. Not exactly like the Quran. Try and produce one surah somewhat similar to the Quran. مِمِّسْلِ Call forth for help and witnesses. Anyone you want besides Allah. If you speak the truth. But if you cannot. And of a surety you cannot. And be prepared for the fire whose fuel is men and stones. You will not be able to do it. And of a surety you cannot do it. And be prepared for the fire whose fuel is men and stones. This is a challenge. Try it and produce a surah somewhat similar to it. Now you'll tell me, but natural, if it is a test, you have to produce a surah in Arabic. So you'll brother Zakir, I don't know Arabic, so how can I take part in this test? I said, fine. If you have produced a surah like the Quran, it has to be in Arabic. It can't be in English, can't be in French, can't be in Hindi, can't be in Urdu. Many people tried, not that they didn't try. Many hundreds of people tried and they failed miserably. They were able to rhyme it, but went away from reality. Many people tried and many are available in the books, but all of them failed miserably. Now you'll ask me, the brother Zakir, I don't know Arabic. I'm not a Jew. How can I try and prove the Quran wrong? There are many falsification tests. I'll give you one more. Where anyone can take part. I started my talk by quoting a verse of the Quran from Surah Nisa, chapter number 4, verse number 82, which says, أَفَلَا يَدَتَّقَرُونَ الْقُرَانَ وَلَوْ قَانَ مِنِنْ دِيْغَرِ اللَّهِ لَوَجَدُوا فِي اِقْتِلَافًا كَثِيرًا Do they not consider the Quran with care? Had it been from anyone besides Allah, anyone besides Almighty God, there would have been many contradictions. So if you want to prove the Quran wrong, only thing you have to do is take out a single contradiction in the Quran. If anyone takes out a single contradiction in the Quran, the Quran will be proved wrong. Not that people did not try. Many people tried. You go on the internet, you will find a thousand contradictions. But all of them, either out of context, or mistranslation, or illogical. So this is called as a falsification test. So Quran shows us a way how to prove itself wrong. If you think it's not from God, you want to prove it wrong, try it. Take out a single contradiction, the Quran will be proved wrong. This is called as the falsification test. 
anyone who believes in God will immediately agree if he's unbiased with what I've said in the last one hour. He'll have to agree that the Quran is from God. But what about a person who does not believe in God himself? If a person does not believe in God, where is the question of Quran being a word of God? So now we have dealt with the majority of the people, but yet there is a large percentage who are atheists, who do not believe in God himself. How do we deal with them? When I meet an atheist, and if he says that he does not believe in God, the first thing I do is I congratulate that atheist. Now you may wonder that why is Zakir congratulating an atheist? The reason I'm congratulating him is because most of the human beings, they are doing blind belief. Most of the Christians, the Christians, because the father is a Christian. He's a Hindu, because the father is Hindu. Some of them are Muslims, because the father is a Muslim. They aren't thinking. This person, he's thinking. He may be coming from a religious background, but he may not agree that the God which his parents are worshipping is what to be called as God. The reason I congratulate atheist is because he has said the first part of the Islamic Shahada, Islamic creed, La ilaha, there is no God. The only thing I have to do is prove to him illallah, but Allah, which I shall do inshallah. To the other non-Muslims, to the other non-Muslims first, I have to prove to him that the God he's worshipping is false. So half the time I waste in trying to prove that the God is worshipping is false. Here, half my job is done, la ilaha. Only thing left for me is illallah and then Muhammad Rasulullah. But Allah and Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon the Messenger of Allah. Now this atheist, he rejects God because he has the wrong concept of God. Now anyone who says he does not believe in God, first I'll ask him, what is the definition of God? For anyone to reject anything, he should know its definition. For example, if I say this is a pen, for you to say it is not a pen, you should know the definition of pen. If you don't know the definition of pen, you cannot say this is not a pen. Is it clear? Do you agree with me or not? If I say this is a pen, for you to say it is not a pen, you have to know the definition of pen, otherwise, you cannot logically say it's not a pen. There was a smart person. He said, no, Brother Zakir. I know that's a book. So even if I don't know the definition of a pen, I can say it's not a pen. I know it's a book. So why should I know the definition of pen? So I said, fine. Do you know that's a book? He says, yes. I say, this, this is a kitab. He will say, no, it's not a kitab. He knows the definition of book, but does not know the definition of kitab. Kitab, in Arabic and Urdu, means a book. If I say this is a pen, 
knowing definition of a pen is more important than knowing what is this. Same way, if a person says there's no God, I'll first ask him, what is the definition of God? The definition they give is when they see that a God tells a lie, a God can be defeated, the God, he can be killed. So when we hear all these stories of God telling a lie, a God can be defeated, a God can be killed, a God can die, a God requires to eat. So they reject the God. Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting the false gods, la ilaha. Similarly, someone, if he believes that Islam is a religion of terrorism, Islam is a merciless religion, Islam is an unscientific religion, Islam is a religion which does not give rights to the woman, and he rejects this Islam. I say, even I reject such Islam. Because I know that Islam is a merciful religion. Islam, it's a scientific religion. Islam has human rights. Islam has women rights. So what do I do? I tell him, the Islam you believe and you reject, it should be rejected, but true Islam is. Then I present to him the true Islam. Similarly, when these people are rejecting the false God, we have to present to them what is the true God. And the best definition of Almighty God, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, given in the Quran, is from Surah Ikhlas, chapter number 112, verse number 1 to 4, which says, Kul Allahu ahad. Say, He is Allah one and only. Allah samad. Allah, the absolute and eternal. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. He begets not, nor is he begotten. Walam there is nothing like him. This is a four-line definition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Any person saying that so-and-so person is God, if that person fits in this four-line definition, we Muslims have got no objection in accepting that person as God. The first is, Kul wallawad, says Allah one and only. Second is, Allah samad, Allah the absolute and eternal. Lam milid walam yulad, he begets not nor is he begotten. Walam yakul lawkufanad, there is nothing like him. There are many people who say that Dajnish, he is Almighty God. Let us put this Bhagwan Dajnish to the test of Surah class. There's a person who asked me a question at the time, that Brother Zakir, we Hindus do not believe in Bhagwan Dajnish to be God. I never said that Hindus believe Bhagwan Dajnish to be God. I've read the Hindu scripture. Nowhere do the Hindu scripture say Bhagavan Dajnish is God. I said some human beings, some people believe Bhagavan Dajnish to be God. Let us put this Bhagavan Dajnish to the test of Surah class. The first is, Qul Allah Ahad. Says Allah one and only. Was Bhagavan Dajnish one and only? Was he the only man who claimed divinity? There are hundreds who have claimed divinity. And in this country alone, there are thousands who have claimed that they were gods. He's not the only one. But the Rajnish Bhakt will say no. He is one and only, he is unique. Let's go to the next test. Allah Samad. Allah, the absolute eternal. Was Rajnish absolute eternal? We know from the autobiography of Rajnish, he says that he was suffering from asthma, from chronic backache, from diabetes mellitus. Imagine Almighty God suffering from asthma, chronic backache, diabetes mellitus. Third test is, Lam yulid walam yulad. He begets not nor is begotten. We know Bhagavan Rajnish. He was born in Madhya Pradesh. And later on, in 1981, he goes to America. 
and takes thousands of Americans for a ride. And in the state of Oregon, he starts his village called as Rajnishpuram. Later on, the American government, they arrest him and they put him behind bars. And Rajnish, he alleges that the American government, they slow poisoned me in the prison. Imagine almighty God being slow poisoned. Later on, the American government, the king of the country, he comes back to India and goes back to the city of Pune, where he has a center, which is now called as Osho Commune. And when you go to the center, if you go to Samadhi, it is mentioned there on Samadhi, Bhagavan Rajnish, Osho, never born, never died, but visited the earth from the 11th of December, 1931, to the 19th of January, 1990. Never born, never died. But visited the earth from the 11th of December, 1931, to the 19th of January, 1990. They forgot to mention on a Samadhi that he was not given visas to more than 21 countries of the world. <laughs> Almighty God coming to visit the world and he requires visas. And the Archbishop of Greece said that if you don't remove Rajnish out of this country, we'll burn his house and the house of his disciple. And the last test, that nothing like him is so stringent that no one besides the true Almighty God can pass. The moment you can compare God to anyone in this world, to anyone in the universe, he's not God. There's nothing like him. Suppose someone says that Almighty God is a thousand times stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger. You might have heard the name of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the person who got the title Mr. World, the strongest man in the world, Mr. Universe, the strongest man in the universe. If someone says that Almighty God is thousand times stronger than Arnold Schwarzenegger, the moment you can compare God to anything in this world, whether it be Arnold Schwarzenegger, whether it be Dara Singh, whether it be King Kong, whether it be a thousand times or a million times, the moment you can compare God to anything in this world, He is not God. There's nothing like Him. You know Bhagavan Rajnish, he wore white clothes, he had a beard, he had two eyes like the human beings, one nose, two hands. The moment you can compare God to anything in this world, He is not God. Otherwise, Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Isra, chapter number 17, verse number 110. Say call upon him by Allah or by Rahman. By whichever name you call upon him, to him belong the most beautiful name. You can call Allah by any name, but it should be a beautiful name. It should not conjure up a mental picture. It should be a name given by himself. And this message, besides being mentioned in Surah Isra chapter 17, verse 110, it's also mentioned in Surah Araf chapter number 7, verse 180, in Surah Ta'a chapter number 20, verse number 8, as well as Surah Hashar chapter 59, verse number 24, that to Allah belong the most beautiful name. Many of the atheists, they believe in science. All these arguments may not satisfy them completely. Many of the atheists, they say that science is a yardstick. They believe science is ultimate. So let's try and prove to this group of atheists also about the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if I know that this atheist believes only in science, after congratulating him, I'll ask him a simple question. That if suppose there is equipment 
there is a gadget who no one in the world has ever seen. And if that gadget is bought in front of you, and if the question is asked that who will be the first person who will be able to tell you the mechanism of this gadget, that atheist, he may say, after thinking for a while, the first person who will be able to tell you the mechanism of a gadget who no one in the world has ever seen, no one in the world knows about it, he will tell you that the creator of that gadget. Or he may say the maker of the gadget. He may say the inventor. He may say the producer. He may say the manufacturer. Whatever he says, it will be somewhat similar. Either creator, manufacturer, producer, maker, inventor, somewhat similar. Just keep that answer at the back of your mind. The second person is the creator, if he says to somebody else, he'll come to know, or a person who does the research, but that is secondary. You ask this atheist that, how did our universe come into existence? So he will tell you that our universe was initially one primary nebula. Then there was a secondary separation, a big bang, which gave rise to galaxies, stars, moon, sun, and the earth on which we live. This he calls as the Big Bang. You ask him, when did you come to know about this creation of the universe, about the Big Bang? He will tell you about 50 years back, 40 years back. So you tell him, this thing what you're mentioning about the Big Bang is already mentioned in the Quran 1400 years ago in Surah Ambiya, chapter number 21, verse number 30, where Allah says, Avalam yaral kafuru. Do not the unbelievers see anna samawati wal arda that the heaven and the earth were joined together and we clove them asunder. What you're talking about, the Big Bang, is already mentioned in the Quran 1400 years ago. Who could have mentioned this in the Quran? So he will tell, maybe it's a fluke. Somebody wrote it. No problem. Don't argue with him. Ask him the next question. What is the shape of the earth? So he will tell you, previously the human beings thought that the world was flat. It was in 1577, when Sir Francis Drake, he sailed around the earth that he proved that the earth was spherical. You tell him that the Quran mentions in Surah Naziat, chapter number 79, verse number 30, that wal arda dahaha. We have made the earth X-shape. The Arabic word dahaha, one of its meaning is an expanse, and the earth is an expanse. The other meaning is derived from the Arabic word duya, which means an egg. And we know today that the earth is not completely round like a ball. It is starting from the pole and bulging from the center. It is geospherical in shape. It is somewhat similar to the egg. And the Arabic word duya does not refer to a normal egg. It specifically refers to the egg of an ostrich. And if you analyze the shape of the egg of an ostrich, it is geospherical in shape. Imagine the Quran mentioned that the earth is geospherical 1400 years ago. Who could have mentioned that? So he will tell you, Ah, your prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was an intelligent man. Don't argue. Continue. The light of the moon, is it its own line of reflected light? So the atheist will tell you, previously we thought that the light of the moon was its own light. But today we know that the light of the moon is not its own light, it's a reflected light. When did you come to know? He will tell you, we came to know yesterday, 50 years back, 100 years back, 200 years back. Quran mentions 1400 years ago in Surah Furqan, chapter number 25. Verse number 61. That blessed is he who hath placed the constellation in the sky. And therein, sun, shams, 
having its own light, and moon having borrowed light. The Arabic word for sun is shams. Its light is always described as siraj of ahaj, meaning a torch or a blazing lamp. And the moon in Arabic is called askamar. Its light is always described as munir or noor. Munir means borrowed light, and noor means a reflection of light. And nowhere is the moonlight described as Vahaj or Siraj. It's always described as Noor or Munir. Borrowed light or reflection of light. Who could have mentioned this in the Quran 14 years ago? Now there'll be a pause. Don't wait for the reply. Continue. When I was in school, I had learned that the sun revolved, but it was stationary. It did not rotate about its axis. The Quran says in Surah Ambiya, chapter number 21, verse number 33, It is Allah who has created the night and the day, the sun and the moon, each one traveling in an orbit with its own motion. The Arabic word yasbahun describes the motion of a moving body. And if it's talking about a celestial body, it means that this sun and the moon, besides revolving, it's also rotating about its own axis. And today science tells us that the sun takes approximately 25 days to complete one rotation. Imagine what I read in school. I finished my school in 1982. Sun was stationary. 1,400 years before the Quran says the sun rotates. And my science book said the sun was stationary. Today, it has been incorporated that the sun rotates. You ask him, that who could have mentioned this? There'll be a silent pause. Some critics will say, it's nothing great that the Quran speaks about astronomy because the Arabs were advanced in the field of astronomy. I do agree, the Arabs were advanced in the field of astronomy, but I'd like to remind them that it was centuries after the Quran was revealed that the Arabs became advanced in the field of astronomy. So it is from the Quran that the Arabs learned about astronomy and not the vice versa. In the subject of hydrology, when you ask the atheist, that you ask him about the water cycle, he will tell you that the water evaporates from the ocean. It forms into clouds. The clouds move into the interior. It falls down as rain, and the water is replenished. We ask him, when did you come to know this? He will tell you it was in 1580 when Sir Bernard Palissy, he spoke about the water cycle for the first time. 1580. So you tell him, what you came to know in 1580, just hardly a couple of hundred years before, the Quran mentions 1400 years ago. The Quran says, the water evaporates from the ocean, formed into the clouds. The clouds move and join. They move into the interior, and they fall down as rain, and the water is replenished. The water cycle is spoken in the Quran in great detail in several places. Mentioned in Surah Zumur, chapter 39, verse number 21. In Surah Rum, chapter number 30, verse number 24. In Surah Hijar, chapter number 15, verse number 22. In Surah Mu'minun, chapter number 23, verse number 18. In Surah Rum, chapter number 30, verse number 48. In Surah Nur, chapter number 24, verse number 43. It's mentioned in Surah Naba, chapter number 17, verse number 12 to 14. It's mentioned in Surah Araf, chapter number 7, verse 57. In Surah Raj, chapter number 13, verse number 17. It's mentioned in Surah Furqan, chapter number 25, verse number 40 and 49. It's mentioned in Surah Yasin, chapter number 36, verse number 34. It's mentioned in Surah Fatir, chapter number 35, verse number 9. It's mentioned in Surah Jasha, chapter number 45, verse number 5. In Surah Qaf, chapter number 50, verse number 9 and 10. It's mentioned in Surah Waqiyah, chapter number 56, verse number 67 to 70. It's mentioned in Surah Tariq, chapter 86, verse number 11. I can go on and go on and go on, quoting only 
the verses in the Quran which speak about the water cycle only. The Quran speaks about the water cycle in great detail. Who could have mentioned this in the Quran 14 years ago? No reply? Don't worry, continue. The Quran speaks about geology. The geologists say that the radius of the earth is 3,750 miles. The deeper layers are hot and fluid. The upper layer is a thin crust, hardly 1 to 20 miles in thickness. And there are high possibilities it will shake. It is due to the folding phenomena, which gives rise to mountain ranges, which prevents the earth from shaking. Allah mentioned this in the Quran. It's mentioned in the Quran. In Surah Naba, chapter number 78, verse number 7, as well as 8, Allah says, Waljibal Autada. We have made the earth as an expanse and the mountains as pegs, which science has agreed today. A similar message is mentioned in Surah Ambiya, chapter 21, verse number 31, that we have placed on the earth mountains standing firm, lest it would shake with you. In the field of oceanology, previously we knew that there were two types of water, salt and sweet, but the Quran says in Surah Furqan, chapter 25, verse number 53, that it is he who has let free two bodies of flowing water, one sweet and palatable, the other salty and bitter. Though they meet, they do not mix. There is a barrier which is forbidden to be trespassed. We knew that there were two types of water, but what does the Quran mean there is a barrier which is forbidden to be trespassed? Today we know that whenever one type of water flows into the other type of water, it loses its constituents and gets homogenized into the water it flows. This homogenizing area is called as a barrier, a barzakh in the Quran. Quran mentioned this 14 years ago. Quran mentioned about biology. It's mentioned in Surah Ambiya, chapter number 21, verse number 30. We have created every living thing from water. Will you not then believe? Who could have believed in the deserts of Arabia that everything is made from water? Today, science tells us that every living thing is made from water. There is a theory known as theory of probability. That if you make a wild guess, the chances you'll be right is depending upon what are the options. For example, if I toss a coin, head or tails, whatever reply you give, the chances you'll be right is one upon two, half, 50%. Two options, chances you'll be right is one upon two, 50%. If I toss a coin twice, the chances I'll be right both the times is 1 upon 2 into 1 upon 2, it is 1 upon 4, it is 25%. If I toss a coin thrice, the chances I'll be right all three times is 1 upon 2 into 1 upon 2 into 1 upon 2, it is 1 upon 8, 12.5%. If I throw a dice, the dice has got six sides. The chances if I make a wild guess it will be right is 1 upon 6. Now if you apply this theory of probability that someone made a wild guess, for example, what is the shape of the earth? You can think of 10 things. Flat, square, rectangle, triangular, hexagonal, on and on, maybe spherical. The chances if you make a wild guess it is spherical, it will be right is 1 upon 10. If you ask a person, the light of the moon, is it its own light or reflected light? If he makes a wild guess, chances he'll be right is 1 upon 2. The chances that both are right, the shape of the earth and the light of the moon 
is not its own light, is 1 upon 10 into 1 upon 2 is 1 upon 20. That is 5%. All living creatures made of what? You can think of a thousand things. Sand, iron, tin, wood, on and on, maybe even water. Chances, you make a wild guess and one is right, is one upon thousand. Chances, all three are correct. Shape of the earth is spherical. Light of the moon is reflected. Everything is made from water. Is one upon 10 into one upon two into one upon 1,000. Is one upon 20,000. Is 0.005%. Only in three scientific facts, it's 0.005%. I've already mentioned several. And if you read my book, there are hundreds. There are many things. Quran speaks about botany. In Surah Rad, chapter number 13, verse number 3, that all the fruits are created in pairs, in sexes, male and female. Quran says in Surah Taha, chapter number 20, verse 53, that the plants are made in sexes, male and female, which you came to know recently. In the field of zoology, Quran says the animals and the birds live in community like the human beings. In Surah Anam, chapter number 6, verse number 38, which we came to know recently. Quran speaks about the bee, that it can find its path, which we came to know recently. In Surah Nahal, chapter number 16, verse number 60 and 69. The Quran says that the worker bee is a female bee. Previously thought it was a male bee. Quran says in Surah Nahal, chapter number 16, verse number 69, that the worker bee is a female bee. Quran speaks about the lifestyle of the spider in Surah Ankabut, chapter 29, verse number 41. The Quran speaks about the lifestyle of the ant in Surah Namal, chapter number 27, verse number 17 and 18, which we have come to know recently. Quran speaks about genetics, that it is the male fluid, it is the sperm which is responsible for the sex of the child. In Surah Najam, chapter number 53, verse number 45 and 46, as well as chapter number 75, verse number 37 to 39, which we came to know recently. Quran speaks about embryology, that all the human beings are made from alaka, a leech-like substance, something which clings. In Surah Alaq, Surah Ikra, chapter 96, verse number 2, which we came to know recently. Quran speaks about the various embryological stages, alaka, mudga, izama, lahem. In Surah Mu'minun, chapter number 23, verse number 12 to 14, which we have come to know recently. There are various scientific facts mentioned in the Quran. I'll just mention Two more. There are people who say that after we human beings die and after we are buried and our bones are disintegrated, how will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be able to reconstruct the bone on the day of judgment? So Allah says, it's mentioned in the Quran, chapter number 75, verse number 3 and 4, that when they say that how will Allah be able to reconstruct the bones on the day of judgment, tell them, Allah can not only reconstruct the bones, He can even reconstruct in perfect order the very tips of your finger. What does Allah mean by saying He can not only reconstruct your bones, He can even reconstruct in perfect order the very tips of your finger? It was in 1880 that Sir Francis Gold, he discovered the fingerprinting method and said that no two fingerprints, even in a million human beings, are identical. Today, the police, the CID, the FBI, the CIA, they use the fingerprinting method to identify the criminal. Quran speaks about the fingerprinting method 1400 years ago, and we discovered in 1880. Who could have mentioned this? I would like to mention one more thing before I end the scientific facts, is that there was a scientist by the name of Prophet Takrata 
Professor Takarada Goshan hails from Thailand, and he was doing a great deal of research in the pain receptors. Previously, we human beings, we thought, and the doctors thought, that only the brain was responsible for the feeling of pain. Today, we come to know that there are certain receptors in the skin which are also responsible for the feeling of pain. That's the reason when a person of burn injury comes to a doctor, the doctor takes a pin and pricks it in the area of burn. If the patient feels pain, the doctor is happy. The pain receptors are intact. If the patient does not feel pain, the doctor is sad. The pain receptors have been destroyed. It's mentioned in the Quran, in Surah Nisa, chapter number four, verse 56, that as to those who reject our signs, we shall cast them in the hellfire, and as often as their skins are roasted, we shall give them fresh skin so that they feel the pain. Indicating there is something in the skin which is responsible for the feeling of pain. Imagine, Quran speaks about the pain receptors 14 years ago. And Professor Takrat Akashan, when he came to know this mention in the Quran, in the ninth medical conference in Riyadh, in the conference itself, he said the Shahada and said, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah, and Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon the Messenger of Allah. So when you ask the atheist, who could have mentioned this in the Quran? The only reply I can give you is the same which he gave you earlier. It is the creator, it is the maker, it is the producer, it is the manufacturer, it is the inventor. This creator, this producer, this manufacturer, this maker, this inventor, we Muslims call him as Allah. That's the reason today science is not eliminating God. It is eliminating models of God. La ilaha illallah. Scientists today, they're eliminating models of God. This cannot be God. This cannot be God. They aren't eliminating God. And a famous philosopher and scientist, Francis Bacon, he said that those who have little knowledge of science, they become atheists. But those who have in-depth knowledge of science, they become a believer in God. I would like to end my talk with the quotation of the Quran from Surah Fusilat, chapter 41, verse number 53, which says, Sanurihim ayatina fil afakhi, wa fi anfusihim, hatta yatabayyira lom anna ulaq, awalam yakfi bikrabbika, anna wala kulla shayin shaheed, that soon we shall show them our signs into the furthest regions of the horizons and into the soul until it is clear to them that this is the truth. Jazakallah for your patience listening. Now we have the presumably more interesting session, the question and answer session. As you prepare your questions for Dr. Zakir and line up at the three mics we have provided for you in the ground, one on my left in the front for the gents, one in the rear on my left for the gents, and one in the ladies section in the rear on my right for the ladies. May I mention a short message of Dr. Zakir on occasion of this conference in context of Peace TV. He tells, my dear brothers and sisters in Islam and humanity, Assalamu alaikum, may peace be on you. I welcome you to share in Peace TV's global mission and vision of creating a better awareness and understanding of Islam as a just, righteous, and peaceful way of life for the entire humanity. Share in removing misconceptions, false fear, and hate of Islam and Muslims globally. This also 
is the focus of this conference. Now, as Peace TV is telecast to over 150 countries worldwide, it beckons your taqwa, spirit, and support to make it a household TV channel across the globe. In all continents where it is being broadcast presently, except for South America. Not only in the Muslim homes, but also in millions of non-Muslim homes seeking reliable Islamic knowledge and wisdom, which many a time is not available in the mainstream media. Now we start the question and answer session. To generate more value from the time available for our question and answer session, the following rules need to be observed by the questioners. Your questions must be on the topic. Is the Quran God's word? Your question should be brief and to the point. You may ask only one question at a time. For your second question, you need to queue again at the back of the queue where you're standing. Questions on the mic will be given first preference and if time permits, questions on slips would be given second preference. Non-Muslims, brothers and sisters, will be given first preference to put forward their questions to Dr. Zakir. This would be tackled and handled by our volunteers at the question mics. Then only would our Muslim brothers and sisters be given questions preference for asking questions to Dr. Zakir. Questions would be allowed only from the mics. These questions would be allowed in a clockwise rotation. First for the ladies, the second for the gents, third for the gents, again for the ladies, gents, and then for the gents. If you have your questions, kindly put it forward now to Dr. Zakir, remember three points on the topic, brief and only one at a time. We'll allow the first question for the ladies, the second year, the third at the rear. Yes, sister. Okay, I have one question. In the Surah Al-Imran, verse 50, it says to follow the teachings of Jesus. Why doesn't anyone do this? Can you mention your name, sister, please? Chastity. Sister asked a question that the Quran says in Surah Imran, chapter 3, verse number 50, that we have to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. And there are many verses which say that we have to believe in Jesus, peace be upon him. Sister, let me clarify that Islam is the only non-Christian faith which makes it an article of faith to believe in Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. No Muslim is a Muslim if he does not believe in Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. We believe that he was one of the mightiest messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We believe that he was the Messiah translated Christ. We believe that he was born miraculously without any male intervention, which many modern Christians today do not believe. We believe that he gave life to the dead with God's permission. We believe that he healed those born blind and lepers with God's permission. The Christian and the Muslim sister, we are going together. But one may ask, where is the parting of ways? The parting of ways is, sister, that many Christians, they say that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he claimed divinity. He said 
that he was Almighty God. If you read the Bible, sister, there is not a single unequivocal statement in the complete Bible where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself says that I am God or where he says worship me. If any Christian can point out a single unequivocal statement, a single unambiguous statement in the complete Bible where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, himself says that I am God or where he says worship me, I am ready to accept Christianity today. I am not speaking on behalf of my other Muslim brothers. In fact, if you read the Bible, it's mentioned in the Gospel of John, chapter number 14, verse number 28. Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, said, my father is greater than I. Gospel of John, chapter number 10, verse number 29, my father is greater than all. Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 12, verse number 28, I cast out devil with the spirit of God. Gospel of Luke, chapter number 11, verse number 20, I cast out devil with the finger of God. Gospel of John, chapter number 5, verse number 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, for I seek not my will, but the will of Almighty God. <laughs> but the will of my Father. Anyone who says that I followed not my will, but the will of Almighty God, he's a Muslim. Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he's a Muslim. He never claimed divinity, and it's clearly mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter number 2, verse number 22. E men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God amongst you by wonders and miracles and signs which God did by him, and you are witness to it. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God amongst you by wonders and miracles which God did by him, and you are witness to it. So we believe that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he was one of the mightiest messengers of God, but he was not God. So here we differ. As far as the teachings are concerned, your basic question was that Quran says we have to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. When Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, came in this world, he was only sent for the Jews, only for Bani Israel. The Quran says clearly, in Surah Saf, chapter number 61, verse number 6, that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, came as a messenger to the Bani Israel. It's mentioned in Surah Al-Imran, chapter number 3, verse 49, that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, was sent only for the Bani Israel. It's mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 10, verse number 5 and 6, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he says, Go ye not into the way of the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? Non-Jews, Hindus, Muslims. Go ye not in the way of the Gentiles, enter ye not into the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the house of the Lordship of Israel. And a similar message repeated in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 15, verse number 24. He says to the apostles that I have been sent not but to the Lordship of the house of Israel. So Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, was sent only for the Bani Israel. And his message was supposed to be followed only for a particular time period. That's what the Bible says, that's what the Quran says. In spite of this, sister, if you read the Bible, what Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, says, if you analyze, it's mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, he was circumcised on the eighth day. We Muslims, mashallah, we are circumcised. Majority of the Christians aren't circumcised. So if you say that following the teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, makes you a Christian, then I'd like to say, that I am more Christian than the Christian themselves. It is mentioned in the Bible. In the book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, verse number 18, that be not drunk. It's mentioned in the book of Proverbs, chapter number 20, verse number 1, that 
wine as a mocker. We Muslims, we don't drink alcohol. Quran says in Surah Maida, chapter number 5, verse number 90, alcohol is haram, we don't touch it. We don't touch it as a whole. The Muslims are the biggest community of teetotalers. So according to the Bible, you should not have alcohol. It's mentioned in the Bible that you should not have pork in several places. It's mentioned in the book of Leviticus, chapter number 11, verse number 7 and 8. It's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 14, verse number 8. In the book of Isaiah, chapter number 65, verse number 2 to 5, no less than five places that you should not have pork. We Muslims, we don't have pork. But majority of the Christians, they have pork. So if Christian means a person who follows the teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, we Muslims are more Christian than the Christians themselves. I can go on and on. When Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, was asked that which is the first of the commandment, he mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 12, verse number 29, he said, Shama Israelo Adnaihaino Adnaihad. It's a Hebrew quotation which means, Yoro Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. We Muslims, mashallah, we believe in none but one God. Majority of the Christians, they believe in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So if you say Christian means the person who follows the teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, we Muslims are more Christian than the Christian themselves. And you can refer to my video cassette, similarities between Islam and Christianity, which will give you more details, that we are following more of the Bibles, the teachings of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, than the Christian themselves. Hope that answers the question, sister. May I request our questioners to kindly state their names and profession so that we get a clear context with what background they're asking their question, and Zakir can, uh, inshallah, give you a more appropriate response. And uh, we would request our volunteers to kindly see that very courteously, the non-Muslim brothers and sisters are given the first preference. May I put this too also in context? The objective is, the brothers, this is an open question-answer session, and you can feel free to ask any questions on the topic of the day. And you are totally free to criticize Islam, attack Islam. If Dr. Zakir is speaking anything which is wrong or not speaking appropriate to the context of peace or what the message of Islam states, and it is against the basic humanity, feel free to ask him. You are under our full protection. And we appreciate a person who would criticize us openly in a context like this than a person who would be against and feel bad in the heart and not come out in the open about what we feel. We want you to come out in the open, ask questions, criticize, attack Dr. Zakir. This is your opportunity. Please don't miss it now. This is your opportunity for the next one hour. Feel free to ask questions. Yes, brother. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Ludovic Bonilla. I am French, non-Muslim, and uh, I am traveling eight months in India. I, uh, I am 18 years old. I compelled my 12 uh, in June. And so, uh, inshallah, if you, you agree, I will meet you in private. But now uh, I just would like to ask you um, about the Jews. Uh, maybe if I am not wrong, you said that uh, it is written in the Quran that Jews and pious are the uh, strength, uh, strong enemies uh, of believers. 
Muslim believers, Muslim. And uh, I would like to know how this verse can favorize peace in uh, in uh, humankind uh, when we see the troubles between Palestine and Israel. Uh, how some Muslim and some Jews can uh, cannot be uh, cannot misunderstand this verse because maybe it can uh, provoke uh, it can provoke some uh, mis misinterpretation or if it's literally that uh, Jews and Muslim have to be enemies. Well, that's a very good question. That he said, I said in my speech, and according to the verse of the Quran of Surah Maida, chapter 5, verse 32, which says that strongest in enmity to the Muslims would be the Jews and the pagans, and the closest in love would be the Christians. So if they wanted to create enmity when they say that the Jews and the Muslims should fight, the Quran doesn't say Jews and the Muslims should fight. The Quran says strongest in enmity to the Muslims, to the believers, will be Jews. It does not say that Muslims should fight with the Jews. It doesn't say that. But it says that the Jews, by nature as a whole, they'll be against Muslims. And I told in my lecture, there are many Jews who accept Islam. There are many Jews who are good to Muslims. But as a whole, as a whole, if you take Jews as a whole and the Christians as a whole, the Christians are closer than the Jews as a whole. This is a fact. For example, the Quran says that the Jews are intelligent also. So that's a fact. If they're intelligent, they're intelligent. That doesn't mean that it hides the fact. And the Quran also says that they will be as a whole a staunchest enemy. So this is one of the falsification tests. That today, if you want to prove the Quran wrong, if the Jews, the Jews get together, all of them, and they decide, Let, let's prove the Quran wrong. At least for three, four years, we will be better than the Christians. Let's stop the war of Palestine. You know the Palestinians? The Jews were kicked out by Hitler. Hitler insinuated six million Jews. He kicked them out of Germany. The Arabs, the Palestinians, they do Alan was Alan. Come with open arms. After a few years, they are kicked out of the home. Imagine someone gives a traveler his home to live, and the traveler kicks him out of his home, and he's shouting that he has taken my house, and you're calling them terrorists. So what they have to do is let's get together and solve this problem. What are the problem is? Today, America is controlled by the Jews, whether it be the banks, whether it be the money, whether it be the power. According to the American survey, no one can become a president of USA without walking the star of David. So the Jews are a minority, less than 5% in America. But they're controlling the economy, they're controlling America. Fine? So they're controlling America. Let all of this, let's solve the problem of Palestine. Let's solve the American problem. Not forever. Few years. Four, five years only. And the problem is solved. So we aren't telling that the Muslims should fight with the Jews. In fact, the Quran says, even if your enemy wants peace, several places, even if they come to fight you, it's mentioned in Surah Anfal, in the battle, if they want peace, give it to them. So Quran is always for peace. Quran is always encouraging them. But if a person does not want peace to prevail, what can we do? Islam is a religion of peace. It wants peace, but it even mentions facts. That means we have to be careful of the Jews, not that we have to fight them. 
unless they come and fight with you. That's a different thing. Imagine what's happening in Palestine, what's happening in other parts of the world. So brother, for peace to prevail, you have to follow the guidance of the Quran and live harmoniously rather than be enemies. So Quran doesn't say that Jews should be enemies, but they will be saying. Hope that answers the question. Can we have the next question from the brother in the rear? I am Mr. Chauhan, a retired teacher. Before question, I would like to salam all of you. Walaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. My question is, uh, the Quran is word of God, as you propounded in uh, detail. Several, but I doubt that Quran is not only the word of God, but it is mixture of God's and prophet's word. How? Because in several verses, you said, you mentioned that uh, I have not written as prophet mentioning that I have not written. It is not my word. Wherever he has clarified that it is not my work. So what about these words? These are not his words. Please. Brother asked a very good question. And that logic I use when I speak to the Christians about the Bible. The brother said that undoubtedly you proved it's the word of God. But besides being the word of God, there's the words of prophet because it's mentioned in the Quran, I did not write it. Brother, no verse of the Quran says I did not write it. You point out the verse and I'll accept that the Quran is not the word of God. What does the Quran say? They say that the Prophet wrote it. And I quote it. Maybe you misheard me. What I said that Surah Sajda, chapter number 32, verse number 1, 2, 3. They say that the Prophet forged it. Tell them, nay, it is the truth from Almighty God. It is Almighty God talking. If the Prophet wrote it, then I agree with you. This is what is mentioned in the Bible. In the Bible it says that Moses, peace be upon him, he says, that I died on so-and-so. Neither Moses wrote it, neither God wrote it. So if Moses wrote the book, how can he say that I died? So that's what you find in the Bible. Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, speaking. So what we say, as far as the Quran is concerned, never will you find any direct speech of the prophet. If it is, it is quoted by Almighty God. In inverted commas. Almighty God may say that the prophet replied, but never does the Quran say, I did not write it. In fact, the Quran says, it is from Almighty God. And I quoted several verses. If you want me to repeat, I can repeat again. Surah Anam, chapter number 6, verse number 19. Surah Anam, chapter number 6, verse number 93. Surah Yusuf, chapter number 12, verse number 1 and 2. In Surah Ta, chapter number 20, verse number 113. In Surah Sajdal, chapter 32, verse number 1 to 3. In Surah Yasin, chapter number 36, verse number 1 to 3. In Surah Zumur, chapter number 39, verse number 1. In Surah Ghafir, chapter 40, verse number 2. In Surah Jasha, chapter 45, verse number 2. Several places the Quran says, this book is a revelation from Almighty God. Direct speech. Hope that answers the question. Yes, sister. Hi, my name is Sarah. I'm an independent student. I graduated in America. I'm here studying independently. Um, as you have stated, Jesus never does claim divinity in the Bible. 
In Revelation chapter 1, I can't read the whole chapter because it would take a very long time, but Jesus is speaking and he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. He also says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. These are also names of God written in the Old and New Testament. And I don't see how that does not show that Jesus is not genetically the Son of God, but spiritually the Son of God. The sister asked her question. She quoted Revelation chapter number one. She didn't give the verses. She's talking about the first 20 verses. And I'm Alpha and Omega is verse number 11. Revelation chapter number one, verse number 11, where Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, says that I'm Alpha and Omega. So she says, just because Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, says I'm Alpha and Omega, I'm first and the last, according to you, he is claiming divinity. Mark me. I had said, there is not a single unequivocal statement. Not a single unambiguous statement. In the complete Bible, where Jesus Christ, peace be upon himself, says that I am God, or where he says, worship me. He didn't say. Now you are saying that because Jesus said I'm Alpha and Omega, therefore he's Almighty God, what do you mean Alpha and Omega? I'm the first and the last in what? Do you mean Jesus Christ was first in this world? No, he was born in a stable. Before him was his mother. There were many prophets that came before him. So surely he's not the first. Neither is he the last. In the Bible it says, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he'll be coming. It's mentioned in the Gospel of John, chapter number 16, verse number 12 to 14. I have many things to say unto you, but he cannot bear them now. For he, when the spirit of truth shall come, he shall guide you unto all truth. He shall not speak of himself. All that he hear, shall he speak. He shall glorify me. He shall show you things to come. Talking about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So what does this word Alpha and Omega mean? It does not mean that he's first and the last, actually, literally. Because there were many people who came before him, and there were many people who came after him. What does it mean that in the law of God, whatever the messenger says, the law of God is first and last. At the time of Moses, Moses was Alpha and Omega as far as the law of God was concerned. Whatever he taught had to be followed. At the time of Jesus, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. His teachings were Alpha and Omega. It had to be followed. At the time of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his teachings are Alpha and Omega. It is the first and the last. It does not mean that he claimed divinity. So therefore I said, any unambiguous statement, if you literally mean he was first and last, if you read the Bible, the Bible disagrees. There were many people who came before Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. He was born in the womb of the mother. And various people came after him also. So surely, sister, therefore I said, unambiguous, unequivocal statement. Hope that answers the question. Yes, brother. My name is Aryaputra Kumar Narayan Singh Konte from Delhi. I speak no continue English to English. I'm very, very sorry. Sir, I want to ask you, what is the situation of God? That's why I want to ask you, Islam धर्मवा अवली बोलते हैं कि यानी कि मनुष्य का कभी पूर्ण जन्म नहीं होता है और जबकि श्रीमद् भागवत गीता में श्री कृष्णा ने अर्जुन से कहा है हे पार्थ 
कि इंसान यानी कि कई बार जन्म लेता है शायद तुम्हें नहीं मालूम है मेरे कई जन्म हो चुके हैं मैंने पहला जो गीता का ज्ञान दिया था वो पहले मनु को दिया था जिसे आप शायद नू इस्लाम का नाम से जानते होंगे और दूसरी बार कहते हैं कि मैंने सूर्य देव को यह ज्ञान दिया था उसके बाद मैं आपको दे रहा हूँ तो सर आप क्या बता सकते हैं कि मनुष्य का पूर्ण जन्म होता है या नहीं होता है क्या भगवान के बनाए हुए नियमों में क्या परिवर्तन होता रहता है कि समय अनुसार मैं ये पूछना चाहता हूँ Can they be changed in the law and the teachings of Almighty God? Can they be changes? And question two is that can a person be reborn? Can he be reborn? And he quoted a verse of the Gita, which I'll come to it later on. As far as the first question is concerned, can the laws of God keep on changing? If the law of God is time-bound, if it's meant for only a particular group of people and for a particular time period, it will keep on changing. For example. As I mentioned in my talk, Torah, Zabur, Injil, all of them were revelation of God, but they were meant for a particular group of people and for a particular time period. But once the last and final revelation of God has been revealed, nothing new can be added. Nothing can be subtracted. Quran is the last and final revelation of Almighty God. No other revelation is going to come. Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him is the last and final messenger there is no other messenger to come Allah says in surah azab chapter 3 verse number 40 ma kana muhammadun aba ahadim min rijalikum wala khir rasulullah wa khatam nabiyin wa kana allah bi kulli shay'in alima that muhammad peace be upon him is not the father of any of you men but he is the messenger of allah and is the seal of the prophets and allah is all knowing full of wisdom After Prophet Muhammad, if anyone says that he is a messenger of God, he gets revelation. Then he requires a psychiatrist. Prophet Muhammad is the last and final messenger. After Quran, no other revelation will come. And Quran clearly mentioned in Surah Maida, chapter five, verse number three: "On this day, have I completed my religion for you, and have chosen for you Islam, and completed my favor on you." Once the religion is completed, nothing new can be added, nothing can be subtracted. So, as far your question, yes. the old revelations they can be changes but the basic message from the first revelation till the last about tauhid about oneness of god is the same so all the revelations that came before the quran they have not maintained their pure form they have been changed by human beings and because it was not meant for eternity almighty god didn't feel it fit to be preserved but as far as the quran is concerned allah says in surah hijr chapter number 15 verse number 9 we have revealed the quran and we shall guard it from corruption this quran even if all the human beings try and change the quran they cannot do it all the human being and jinn they get together they can't change the quran so as far as the previous revelation yes they can be a change but the final revelation no it cannot be changed it is the ultimate now coming to the second question सेकेंड क्वेश्चन ये है सर सेकेंड क्वेश्चन में जुड़ा रहा हूँ मुझे एक बंदे जो रहते हैं उनमें हमारी ओर से ब्रह्मा विष्णु महेश तीनों के काम अलग अलग हैं यानी कि पहला ब्रह्मा यानी कि जैसा जो जीव काम करता है उसके हिसाब से उसको जन्म यानी कि योनि में भेज देते हैं दूसरा काम है विष्णु जो विष्णु जी हैं वो जीवों की पालना पोषना की ओर ध्यान देते हैं तीसरे जो महादेव हैं जिनको देवादिदेव महादेव यानी कि शिव शंकर बोलते हैं यानी कि वो सब का हिसाब बराबर करते हैं 
یعنی کہ آپ کے پاس جو یعنی کہ اللہ تعالیٰ کے پاس جو تین بندے نیک بندے رہتے ہیں ان کا بھی کام کیا یہی ہے بھائی صاحب آپ نے نیا سوال پوچھا جی اس کا جواب دوں گا پہلے پرانے سوال کا جواب دوں گیا نہیں میں جی آپ نے پنر جنم کی بات کی برابر جی تو اس کا جواب چاہیے نہیں چاہیے 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 نا تو پہلا پنر جنم کی بات کروں گا پھر آپ کی برہما وشنو اور شیوا کی بھی بات کروں گا ہاں ان شاء اللہ تینوں کی بات کروں گا میں دیور از آسٹ دا نیو کوشچن سو آئی ٹول دی فرسٹ آئی ریپلائی ٹو دا اولڈ کوشچن دین آئی کم ٹو نیو کوشچن اس پریویس کوشچن واز دیٹ ڈو یو بلیو ان ری انکارنیشن ان اے سیکنڈ لائف ایز فار ایز ری انکارنیشن از کنسرن واٹ یو کوٹیڈ از بھگوت گیتا بٹ دا ہائیسٹ اسکرپچر ان ہندوازم از وید وید آر دا نمبر ون دے آر دا شروتیز دین لیٹر آن کم دا اسمرتیز Mahabharat, part of Mahabharat is Bhagavad Gita. Though Bhagavad Gita is more widely read than the Vedas, but authenticity in grade, Veda is higher. The Ved speaks about Punar Janam. Punar Janam means next life. And if you read the Quran, the Quran too speaks about next life. Quran says you'll come in this world, you'll die, again you'll be resurrected. Punar means next, Janam means life. Punar Janam. Nowhere does the Veda speak about death, life, death, life, death, life, death, life. Nowhere. Nowhere. Neither does the Bhagavad Gita speak about that. What you quoted to me is a verse of Bhagavad Gita, chapter number 4, verse number 22. I'm giving you the reference. Where it's mentioned in Bhagavad Gita, according to the Hindus, it's the word of Almighty God. And it says that as the human beings keep on changing the clothes, They throw away the old clothes and put on new clothes, same way the soul will take a new body. We'll throw away the old body, new body. I have got no problem. In this world, you have this body. When you die, you are rejected, new body, no problem. It is matching with the Quran, matching with the Veda. But this philosophy, what you're talking about reincarnation, in Sanskrit, it is called as samskara. The theory of reincarnation, the theory of life and death. called as rebirth, correct? Now this theory was propounded by the scholars of Hinduism. It's nowhere mentioned in the Vedas. Why? Because they could not justify. Some people are born deaf, some people born rich, some people born in a poor family, some people are born healthy, some people congenital heart disease. How can God be unjust? So they couldn't justify, so they came with the philosophy of death, life, death, life, karma and dharma. Karma is the deed. Action, dharma is the law. So what justification? How can God be unjust? How can a person be born with a heart disease? Ah, last life, he did some sin. This was a philosophy assumption by the scholars of Hinduism, not by Ved. So then they came with this philosophy, and they say that if you do good deeds, in your next life, you will be born of a higher degree. And the universal brotherhood of Hinduism is all living creatures are brotherhoods. So maybe you're born sometime as a cockroach, sometime as a rat, sometime as a cat, sometime as a dog, sometime as a human being. Human being is the highest level. So if you do good deeds, you're born higher. If you do bad deeds, you're born lower. Right? And you're born as a human being seven times. How many times? Seven. This is the philosophy of the Hindu scholars called as samsara. Now I'm asking you a question, brother. In this world, sin is increasing or decreasing? Sin, paapardi ke ghatri hai. Bardi hai, mashallah, very good. Sin is increasing. 
पॉपुलेशन ऑफ ह्यूमन बींग इंसान जो जनता इंसान है बर्थडे के घट रहे पॉपुलेशन बर्थडे के घट रही है बर्थडे है माशाला तो सिन इज ऑल्सो इंक्रीजिंग एंड ह्यूमन बींग्स आर इंक्रीजिंग इफ सिन इज इंक्रीजिंग ह्यूमन बींग शुड इंक्रीज so what we realize logically it's not correct therefore i believe in punar janam punar janam is next life which even quran speaks about next life but only one you come in this world only once now coming to your third question about brahma vishnu mahesh or shiva same same two names mahesh and shiva same but more popular one is shiva right the creator the destroyer the sustainer brahma vishnu shiva and you ask me that does god have these three forms no god does have three forms does he have any people yes he has many angels see alone god is sufficient he does not require anyone's help but if he wants he can do it through an angel if he wants if he doesn't want no problem he just wills and it is kun fayakun be and it is as far as the hindus what they believe they believe in some more similar trinity what the christians believe even the hindus believe that almighty god one god is god to create brahma one god is god to destroy shiva one god is god to sustain vishnu so separate god for creation separate god for sustaining separate god for destroying the quran says in surah ambiya chapter 21 verse number 22 if there were gods more than one god surely they would have fought among themselves and quran says in surah mu'minun chapter number 23 verse number 91 that if there were many gods they would have piled upon one another and that's what we find in hindu mythology one god fighting with other god one god defeating the other god third god helping the second god how can gods fight so best is only one god superpower is only one and that is what the ved says if you ask a common hindu how many gods does he believe in some will say 3 some will say 100 some will say 1000 some will say 33 crores 330 million but if you ask a learned hindu that how many gods should a hindu believe in he will tell you hindu should believe only in one god but the common hindu he believes in a philosophy known as pantheism what he says that everything is god the tree is god the sun is god the moon is god the human being is god and the snake is god what we muslims say everything is gods G O D with an apostrophe S. Everything belongs to God. The tree belongs to God. The sun belongs to God. The moon belongs to God. The human being belongs to God, as well as the snake belongs to God. So the major difference between the Hindus and the Muslims is the Hindus say everything is God. We Muslims say everything is God's. G O D with an apostrophe S. The major difference is apostrophe S. If we can solve this difference of apostrophe S, the Hindus and the Muslims. will be united how do we do it allah says in the quran in surah al-imran chapter number 3 verse number 64 ta'alu ila qalmatin sawa'in bainana bainakum come to common terms as between us and you which is the first term allah na'budu illa allah that we worship none but allah wala nushrika bihi shay'an that we associate no partners with him wala yattakhidha ba'duna ba'dan arbaban min dunillah that we erect not among ourselves lords and priests other than allah fa in tawallah if then they turn back faqulu shadu be na muslimun say we bear witness that we are muslims bowing over to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the best way to analyze any religion is not to try and understand what the followers are doing but you have to analyze the scriptures now if we analyze hindu scriptures 
if we read the Upanishads, which Ved Upanishad the highest, it's mentioned in Dogya Upanishad, chapter number six, section number two, verse number one, Ikkam Evidityam. God is only one without a second. It is a Sanskrit quotation. Ikkam Evidityam. God is only one without a second. It's mentioned in Shweta Sitar Upanishad, chapter number six, verse number nine. Of him, there is no Lord. He has got no parents. Almighty God has got no superior. He has got no mother. He has got no father. It's mentioned in the Sveta Sveta Upanishad, chapter number 4, verse number 19. Of that God, there is no Pratima. Pratima means image. Pratima means photograph, idol, sculpture, painting. Almighty God has got no photograph, has got no sculpture, has got no statue, has got no painting. He has got no images. And amongst the Hindu scriptures, the most sacred are the Vedas. It's mentioned in Yajurved, chapter number 32, verse number 3. Pratimasti. Of that almighty God, there is no Pratima, there is no images, there is no photograph, there is no sculpture, there is no statue. It's mentioned in Yajurved, chapter number 40, verse number 8. Almighty God is pure. It's mentioned in Yajurved, chapter number 40, verse number 9. Andhatma Pavishanti ya Samuti Mupaste. They are entering darkness, those who worship the Asambuti. Asambuti are the natural things like fire, water, air, etc. And the verse continues, they are entering more in darkness, those who worship the Sambuti. Sambuti are the created things like table, chair, idol, etc. Who says that? Yajurved, chapter number 40, verse number 9. And the Brahma Sutra of Hinduism is Ekkam Brahm. There is only one God, not a second one. Not at all, not at all, not in the least bit. Uh, we'd like our audience to give this young boy a good hand because I think when we are uh, young, we are more innocent, we are more righteous, we are more truthful. He's an example of it, putting a very genuine question. He had a genuine question. He believed in a genuine approach. Alhamdulillah. Uh, maybe you have the next question from the brother in the back. Hello. Uh, Mr. Jakir, this is Aurora Vivek. Being a Hindu, over here, I'm not over here to put any controversy, but I have a question. Aham Brahma, Aham Vishnu, Aham Mahesh, that was called by someone of my very good friend. Eventually, he was telling us about Quran and Bible, but what my question is, I have got just four questions to ask to you. Number one. Most important question first. Okay, I, if I, there is time, we would definitely permit you another no question. No issues, no issues. Because if everyone I, asks two, three questions, if I as a coordinator allow, I think we are not being fair to the other questioners. Fine, Thank, I got your point. Just one question. As though, Mr. Jake, you were talking about Genesis version and everything, I just have a put one question. If you are making a comparison between the Quran and Bible. Why not a comparison between the Vedas, the Quran, and the Bible? They are versatile in each every manner. One each eventually is cooperated with each other. God, the Almighty is one. Rather, it called be as Allah, it's called by Bhagwan or Jesus. Why not make it sure all of the people should say, why not only one? Brother asked a very good question, very important question, very practical question. When I'm making comparison between Quran and the Bible, why not make comparison between Quran, Bible, Veda, etc.? And he said that why don't you follow all? 
and that is what I tell the people that for the Quran says, Come to common terms as between us and you. Brother, what I tell every human being, any, whether it be a Hindu, Christian, Muslim, Jew, Sikh, Parthi, no problem. I tell them a simple thing which everyone will agree. At least agree that one scripture is the word of God. No one would mind doing that. The Hindu would say, okay, fine, Ved is the word of God. Christian will say, Bible is the word of God. Muslim will say, Quran is the word of God. The Sikh, he will say, my Granth is the word of God. The Parsi, he will say that my Avesta is the word of God. No problem. Now, put all these scriptures together. What is common? Let us agree to follow that. What is not common? We can discuss that tomorrow. Correct? I only ask them one thing. What is common in all these scriptures? Let us agree to follow. Because Sorry to is... interrupt you, sir. Sorry to interrupt you. Brother, please let me complete the answer. Uh, and please, after please, I, please, please, please. After, I finish, after I finish the answer, what you want, you can say. Maybe what you want to ask, I will give in the answer. Correct? I go in stepwise. Right, sir. The mathematical, if you want to solve a problem, if I directly give you the answer, you won't understand. I have to go stepwise. One, two, three, four. Fine. Exactly. So my only request is, what is common in all the scriptures, let us follow. What is not common, we'll discuss later on. Fine? Now, common in all the scripture is that God is one. So let us believe God is one. We say that God is one. Didn't I say that? Ikkam evidityam. God is only one without a second. Bible says that. Gospel of Mark, chapter number 12, verse number 29. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 6, verse number 4. Shama Israel, o Adnail Harnai Khad. Yoro Israel, the Lord, our God is one. The Jews say that, the Christians say that. Quran says, Kulwallawad. Say there's God one and only. So where does this Trinity come in between? Where does this Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva come in between? Where? I didn't believe in that. Brother, let me complete. There is no Brahma mentioned in the Quran. There is no Shiva mentioned in the Quran. There is no Jesus mentioned in the Quran that is God. It's mentioned in the Quran is a messenger of God. The Bible also doesn't say that Jesus is God. It is the false reading of the Christians. So how come you are saying that it doesn't matter whether Allah, Jesus, it matters. The Quran says, in Surah Isra, chapter number 17, verse number 110, Say, call upon him by Allah or by Rahman. By whichever name you call upon him, to him belongs the most beautiful names. It should be a beautiful name. It should not conjure up a mental picture. It should be a true name. You can't give a false name to God. You can't insult God. You can't belittle God. Some people tell me, what difference does it make? You call Pani, you call water, you call Tani, no problem. You call Pani, you say in Hindi. Tani, you say in Tamil. Moya or Mai, you say in Arabic. Jal, you say in Hindi, no problem. You can call by any name. But then, one morning, my friend comes and tells me, every morning I have water. But after I have water, the doctor told me I have a lot of water, but I start vomiting. I said, why? No, the water is yellowish. The doctor told him to have water. He has every morning one glass of water. The water is yellowish. 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 Then I realized what he's talking is not water, it is urine. <laughs> you can't call urine as water. The definition of water, you can call Tani, you can call water, you can say Rahman, you can say Rahim, you can say Karim, you can say Rab. But you can't call God as man. You can't call God as insan. 
Therefore, you can't call water as urine. And the touchstone for theology is Surah class, chapter number 112, verse number 1 to 4. What I mentioned in Surah class. So what I'm going to tell, that what is different, keep it aside. Nowhere does the Quran say that Jesus is God. Nowhere does the Quran say Mahesh is God. So keep Mahesh out. Yes, if you say Brahma, Brahma is a Sanskrit word which is known as a creator God. So if you say creator, I've got no problem. If you say God is a creator, I've got no problem. Because Quran says that God is Khalik, creator. But then you say this creator has got four heads. He has got four hands. Then you're giving an image to God. You're going against Veda. Of that God, there is no image. I do believe so. So call him creator. But you say that creator is a man, then he's not God. I do have an apology. The creator. So same way, brother, if you see my video cassette, similarities between Islam and Hinduism, inshallah, most of your queries will be answered. Hope that answers the question. I do apologize. What I was specifically want to say to you, Mr. Jakir, I do not want to get into controversy over here. Um, my thing is this, Mr. Jakir was telling appropriately right what exactly was over here the people is wanting. What I wanted to know, basically, exactly what he, the speeches he is providing to us, we are over to listen him. Exactly the Renaissance, the Renaissance, the creator of the world, rather it should be counted as Allah, Bhagwan, or the Jesus, should not be created himself. It has to be materialized with differentiations. Thank you. Brother, if you had heard my answer, you call him Allah, I've got no problem. You call him Bhagwan. As long as what is the meaning of Bhagawan? According to Rajnish, Bhagawan means something else. I don't know whether you know. According to Rajnish, what definition Rajnish gave, then I cannot believe God is Bhagawan. So what we have to realize, we have to believe in the concept of the Almighty, the Creator, the Maker. If you know that concept, and the word should be chosen correct. It should not be a wrong word. And what word is common between the scriptures, we have got no objection. But Jesus, as you again mentioned, is not common in the Bible and the Quran. Quran says Jesus is the prophet of God, and even the Bible says the prophet of God, but the Christians, they misunderstand that Jesus claimed divinity. So if the Christians, they misunderstand the Bible, why should I agree with the misunderstanding? I have to clarify that. I have not come here to create a controversy. I have come here to come to common terms. Come to common terms, as will assign you. I'm Dr. Pooja Arora. I'm from Sign Hospital. I'm a physiotherapist. Uh, so I totally agree with you. Just a small question. When uh, Muhammad Prophet attained his prophethood, uh, and he, as you said, he was a common man before he attained prophethood, by that time, is it that uh, Quran, which is the word of God, has enlightened only Muslims because God can't be partial? So what was the rest of the world doing when Muhammad Prophet was enlightening a small sect of people? And is it that such a long time is being taken for the rest of the sector of society to just get enlightened to this word of God? And how many years would the non-Muslims, like Hindus, 
would uh, I totally agree with you it has to be a concept Hindus are believing idols pictures but or Ram Bhagwan whatever but it is a concept and they have to be enlightened about it that it is one Hinduism also follows uh, an almighty which is a power a divine power but unfortunately it has been given in various forms so this enlightenment if quran helps a hindu to know this enlightenment it is fabulous sister asked a very good question and a very important question she said that if quran is such a great book if it's the word of almighty god then why when it came to prophet muhammad it was only meant for that small group you know arabs of that time only Muslim, why not for the full world? How long will it take? Sister, the Quran was never revealed only for the Muslims or for the Arabs. The Quran was revealed for the whole of humanity. It's mentioned in Surah Ibrahim, chapter number 14, verse number 1. In Surah Ibrahim, chapter number 14, verse number 52. In Surah Baqarah, chapter number 2, verse number 185. And Surah Zumur, chapter number 39, verse number 41. That the Quran was sent for the whole of humanity. Time is short, therefore I'm only giving references, not the quotations. The Quran was not sent only for the Muslims and the Arabs. The Quran was sent for the whole of humanity. And Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he was not sent only for the Muslims and the Arabs. The Quran says in Surah Ambiya, chapter number 21, verse number 107, that we have sent thee not but as a mercy to all the human beings, as a mercy to all the worlds, as a mercy to all the creatures. The message is repeated in Surah Sabah, chapter number 34, verse number 28, that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is sent as a universal messenger, giving glad tidings and warning them against sins. But most of the human beings yet do not know. Now this verse of the Quran says, most of the human beings yet do not know. That's the reason, sister, we are having such conferences. It's the duty of every Muslim that should convey the word of Almighty God to all the human beings. So, uh, one more thing, sir. Can it I ask? It may take time, but better late than never, sister. Better late than never. And everyone who claims to be a Muslim may not be a practicing Muslim. He may have a name, Abdullah Zakir, Muhammad Sultan, but he may not be a practicing Muslim. Similarly, as you rightly said, in Hinduism, you don't follow your scriptures. But yet, the religion which is the maximum followed, not only by lip service, but in practice today, it is Islam, number one. In numbers, Christianity, it is close to 2 billion. Muslims claiming is 1.3 billion. But the people practicing the religion, number one is Islam. Percentage-wise, it is the largest. So these lectures are mainly those small percentage of Muslims who are not following Islam correctly to get them closer to Islam. And to those non-Muslims, we want to give the message of peace, the message of love, and prove to the world that there is only one God, the ultimate peace can only come if you submit a will to Almighty God. That's the only way to get ultimate peace in this world and thereafter. So that is the reason, sister, we are having such conferences. We have a satellite channel, Peace TV, where every day more than 60 million people, they are watching it. So at least on the Day of Judgment, we can give shahada to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ya Rab, we did our best, whatever we could. We at least gave the message every day at least to 60 million people. And today, the message has even reached you, sister. So tomorrow, on the Day of Judgment, I can tell to Almighty God, I gave the message to the sister. Whether you accept or not is in your hand, sister.
add? Can I? Thank you very much, sir. Uh, just one more thing. If because God is impartial, so on the day of judgment, as you did a partiality that uh, non-Muslims should be given first priority to ask their questions, God is impartial. So if Hindus stop believing in idols and pictures and they start believing in the Almighty, which has got no form, no shape, and on the day of judgment, is it that they will be not behaved as Muslims by God? No, it is not like that. It is the concept which is there in Hinduism, the misbelief that is followed in forms. But if and Hindu following Hindu religion is not wrong, but following because your aim is God, He is the supreme. He should not have form. But question. if this message is reached to Hinduism, you have won it. Very good, sister. Very good question. Thank you, sir. Regarding we being partial and impartial, there can be two different views from your side. <laughs> because we're partial, at least you could ask a question. <laughs> if I wasn't partial, I couldn't tell to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. I gave you the message directly, one to one. You know, so he doesn't. He doesn't believe. So what you have to realize, sister, but why we are partial? We are partial to be impartial. Because the others have got the message. If not 100%, 90%. You all have got less. So we are partial to be impartial. Right, sir. So what we need now, to... Now coming back to your question, sister. Yes, it's sir. It's a very good question. That if the Hindus believe in one God, do not believe in idols, do not believe in images, do not believe in statues, on the day of judgment, won't we be Muslims? Correct. You are following part of Islam. Correct. If you read the Hindu scriptures further, the Hindu scriptures say there is another messenger to come. And the coming of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has been prophesied in various places. He's prophesied in Bhavishya Purana, Parva 3, Khanda 3, Adhyat 3, Shloka 5 to 8. He's prophesied in Bhavishya Purana, Parva 3, Khanda 3, Adhyat 3, Shloka 10 to 27. He's prophesied in the Atharva Ved, chapter number 21, verse number 6. Atharva Ved, chapter number 21, verse number 7. He's prophesied in several places. He is mentioned by name no less than 100 times as Muhammad in the Hindu scriptures. Right, Time sir. doesn't permit me to mention all the references. There is mention of a Kalki Avatar in Kalki Purana, chapter number 2, verse number 4, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 15. It says that there is another Avatar to come, Kalki Avatar, whose father's name shall be the servant of God, Vishnu Yash, translated to Arabic as Abdullah, which was the name of the father of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The mother's name of this Kalki Avatar would be Sumati, that means peace and serenity, which is Amina in Arabic, which was the name of Prophet Muhammad mother. This person would be born on the 12th day of Madhav, the 12th Rabbi Awal, that is the Prophet Muhammad born. He'll have four companions, and we know the first for Khulfa Rashidin. It says that he will be born in a place which is peaceful, in Makkah. He'll be born in a house of the chief of Makkah, that is the Quraysh tribe. It says that he will go northwards from a cave and come back. And Prophet Muhammad went from Makkah to Medina and came back. On and on, talking about Kalki Avatar. So you believe in one part, La ilaha illallah. You also Muhammad have to believe in Muhammad Rasulullah. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And if you do this, you keep your name. Whatever your name was, whether Preeti, whatever name, sister. What is the name, sister? Pooja. Pooja. You keep your name. Don't change your name. But indeed, you will be a Muslim. Changing your name is not required. So the concept? Big concept of one God? No statue, no images. Last final messenger, Prophet Muhammad. Inshallah, on the day of judgment, you will go to heaven with your name, Puja. So the pathways are different. The only thing is the goal should be the same. That is no, what sister. I believe. For the goal, pathways are different. 
if both the different pathways go to the same goal, it is fine. Meet at the same goal. Yes, sir. That is what I want to say. All the roads don't lead to Rome, sister. Fine. You may think it will lead. So if you think falsely, I have to correct you. I don't can, believe. No, sir. Uh, no, no sir. sister. If you say you're a Hindu, by yeah. definition, yeah. Hindu is a person who lives in India. No, sir. It's not like that. Sister, <laughs> Hindu is a geographical definition. You don't know. I know. I'm a Hindu by geographical definition. I'm a Hindu. Geographically, sister, the word Hindu was first used by the Arabs. There are many Arabs here. They call me Hindi when I go there. Hindi, Hindi. They tell I'm a Hindu. The word Hindu was first used by the Arabs when they came to India. It was also used by the Persians to describe the people who lived in India. So geographically, I'm a Hindu. But if you tell me religiously, Hindu is a misnomer. Swami Vivekananda said, the right term is a Vedantist. You should follow the Vedas. So as far as you follow the right things in the Vedas, believe in one God and believing in Prophet Muhammad by deed, you are a Muslim. So the religion can't be powerful. The it ultimate is. power is Allah. Correct. Right? Ultimate I agree with you. power is God. And the so religion are... of God. And the religion of God is the ultimate religion. So the There's religion of God religion. is not Islam. The religion of God is not Islam. Islam, if Islam is an Arabic word which is hurting you, you keep Islam aside. No, no, no. it's not hurting me. I'm telling it's you, sister. It's not hurting me. If it's not hurting you, nobody. No, sir, it is a park word in itself. How it can hurt anybody? At it's... least not an educated girl. Mashallah, you're an educated girl, sister. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, sister, sir. Sister, Islam means submitting your will to God. So if Islam is a problem, keep Islam aside, but submit your will to God. Allah says in the Quran in Surah Al-Imran chapter 3 verse number 19, in the deen in the law Islam, the only religion, the only way of life accepted in the sight of Allah is submitting a will to Almighty God. Yes, brother. Uh, Mr. Naik, uh, this is myself, Dr. Suryakant Puar from St. George Hospital. Uh, thanks for the nice and enlightening lecture about the Quran as God's word. As you mentioned that Quran is God's word, I just want to ask you, who is the creator of the God? What is the origin of God? The brother asked a very good question. That if Quran is the word of God, who is the creator of God? Very good question. If I ask you, brother, that your friend John, he gave birth to a child. Can you guess the child was girl or a boy? Your friend John gave birth to a child in the hospital. Can you guess was it a girl or a boy? Guess, guess? No. Girl I, or a boy? I can't guess. Sorry? I may not guess. Try. At least 50% you'll get right. Yeah, 50%. One half chance. Okay, tell me. Boy. Boy. <laughs> Brother, can a man give birth to a child? No. So is it a girl or a boy? But the name can be followed female. I'm asking you, your friend, John. <laughs> I don't know anyone female called by John. No, we can call. Okay, suppose a friend who's a boy, he's a man, he went to hospital, he gave birth to a child. Was it a girl or a boy? Girl. <laughs> can a man give birth to a child, brother? No. <laughs> ah, now you understood. A man can't give birth to a child. So where's the question of it being girl or a boy? So by definition, God is uncreated. So your question, who's the creator of God, is like I asking you a question, your friend who's a man, he gave birth to a child, is it a girl or a boy? The question is illogical. Because by definition, a man cannot give birth to a child. 
So where's the question of girl or a boy? So by definition, God is uncreated. Every created thing has a creator. God does not have a creator. Therefore, in my argument with the atheist, I never ever said that everything has a creator. I said every created thing has a creator. But the God is uncreated. By definition, the moment I mention who is the creator of God, he is not God. Therefore, by definition, God is uncreated. Hope that answers the question. Okay. Thank you. The next question from the brother in the back. My name is Peter. I'm a student of religion, philosophy. Now, my question is on the textual authenticity of the Quran. First, when uh, Abu Bakr commanded Zayd to gather the text together, he did that. But there is also written in Al-Bukhari, volume number 5, page 96, Abdul ibn Masud, he was the uh, authority mentioned by Muhammad. He gathered a text. Then Salim, the freed slave, he gathered a text. And also uh, Ubay ibn Kaab, a master reciter mentioned by Muhammad. And there are also other people who compiled their test. But when Usman became the Khalifa, he ordered Zayed to make replicas, seven replicas of his text and sent it to the different parts and ordered those previous texts to be burned. Now, if those master reciters compile the Quran and Usman ordered those texts to be burned, now there raises a question on the authenticity of the Quran. MashaAllah, brother knows about Ibn Masood, may Allah be peace with him, about Zayd Ibn Thabit, may Allah be peace with him. MashaAllah, many of the Muslims will not know those names. You know, now it's easy to go on the internet. Jesus Christ, peace be upon said in the Gospel of John, chapter number 8, verse number 32, seek the truth and the truth shall free you. Now when internet is there, many people go on the internet, there are various websites which are speaking against Islam. They go, they get the name and they decide, no problem, brother. No problem. Brother, as far as your question is concerned, the people who compiled the Quran, there was a group of Sahaba, the companion of the Prophet. Whenever Prophet got a revelation, he repeated it to these scribes. And suppose, He got the revelation, and Prophet, mashallah, very good memory, Allah saw to it that he retained the memory, he repeated it. When he repeated, these scribes wrote down. The Prophet personally verified. He was an ummi. How did he verify? Okay, read it now. Ah, correct. So Prophet personally verified when he was alive, whatever was written down of the Quran, whether it was perfect or not. Under his personal supervision. And these scribes, they were selected by the Prophet, and that's how when the revelation came in 22 and a half years, all was written down and later compiled in one book. All supervised by Prophet Muhammad even the order. Now, later on, there were many other people, whenever the Prophet said a verse was revealed, 
They used to write in his own notes. Many, many sabhas. But this private notes of the other people weren't checked by the prophet. Suppose the teacher gives the notes. 100 students are copying. How do I know whether it's right or wrong? If I'm giving a lecture, if some people note down, chapter number, verse number, chapter number, verse number, how fast can they note down? And if I don't verify, they say, oh, Dr. Naik, you said this reference. Where did I say it? Have I checked it? So what happened later on, there were many variants version of the Quran. Version means people thought their own notes to be the real Quran. And when Islam spread, people did not know which was the real Quran. So at that time, whatever the compiled copy was there, when Hazrat Abu Bakr Malla was with him, during these scribes, it was then in the hand of the wife of Prophet. Hazrat Hafsa, may Allah be pleased with her. And then Usman ordered that copy, may Allah be pleased with him, and had a replication so that it could be sent to different parts of the world. And then he said, whatever copy you have, whether right or wrong, you burn it. Because that hasn't been verified. So people had their own notes. Suppose someone makes notes of my lecture, there are people making here notes. Maybe 80% is right, 90%, 100% is very difficult. Correct? 100% is very difficult. So 80%, even if it's 100% correct, if I give you now, this is the book of my lecture, you know, you'll be getting a book now. Quran and Modern Science. Authenticated by me. Your notes, you throw it away. Why does he require the notes? I have given you a book. Anyway, you're not getting the full lecture. You're getting part of the lecture, Quran, Modern Science. Now that part, I'll tell you, brother, throw that notes away. This is correct. Authenticated by me, Dr. Zakir Naik. My book. The same way, whatever was authenticated by the Prophet, the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Hadad Usman, may Allah be pleased with him, he said, all the other copies should be burned. That does not mean there was variant Quran. There was one Quran that was revealed. But people, when they wrote with their own notes, there were differences. So that's the reason now one of those copies is even today present in Koptaki Museum in Istanbul. So this, and if you check it with today's Musaf, it is exactly the same, word to word, letter to letter. That's the way, even if you try to change it, you cannot, because today there are millions of people who know the Quran by heart. And here in our audience, mashallah, we have many huffas, mashallah, who know the Quran by heart. Even if you burn the copy, you get all the huffas together, you get together, again, the original Quran, word to word, letter to can be reproduced. Hope that answers the question. But isn't it the same with the master reciters at the time of Muhammad and the Zayed's text was compiled only after the death of Muhammad? That's totally wrong to say that. What we have to realize that Zayed ibn Thabit, he was appointed as the chief of the scribes. There were many sahabas together. He was appointed as the chief. And this was personally verified by Prophet Muhammad And later on, at the time of Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him, it was made into a book form. Because at that time, there was not paper, there was no pen. It was written on parchment, on bones, on blades, on different material. Then it was later transferred to one uniform material and made into a book form. Nowhere does it say that there were different versions. So all these scribes, even when it was written down again, when Hazrat Usman, when he ordered Malla be with him, those people who were alive in the group of the scribes, he called them. And among them again, Zayd ibn Thabit, he was appointed as the leader. Hope that answers the question. Yes, sister. Can we have the next question? 
brother Zakir Naik, Assalamu alaikum. I'm Namita, a kindergarten teacher by profession. First of all, let me congratulate you for all your commendable work in spreading the message of peace, love, and brotherhood. I want to ask you, Brother Nayak, if Quran is the God's word, if Islam is truly the way of life, then why are people taking so long in realizing and accepting it? Sister, that's a very good question. Quran is the word of God, Islam is the true religion. Why are people taking so long in accepting it? Sister, the straight path is not always easy to follow. Your perception differs. The perception of each individual differs. For example, a person who may not be following Islam, oh, if I accept Islam, he may be an alcoholic. I'll have to stop having alcohol. I may have to stop going out with girls and dating. So then that will prevent him. So what he thinks, okay, fine, Islam may be good, but I don't want to stop my alcohol. I don't want to stop going out flirting with girls. I don't want to stop having pork. So when you learn, there may be certain hitches that may come. Maybe a person may not be alcoholic. Maybe he may not be having pork, but he may think, okay, now I accept Islam. That means for 40 years I was a fool. Oh, I better not accept Islam. Some may think, if I accept Islam, what will my friend say? What will my mother say? What will my father say? So all these obstacles, sister, only if you can overcome these obstacles, can you accept the truth. So therefore, what you have to realize, that the message is clear. The message is logical. It's absolutely clear. But there are other things which are there in the baggage. A person has to be so strong that, fine, if this is the truth, I'm ready to accept the truth, even if I have to leave my other non-Muslim friends. And believe me, sister, this is only a perception. And many non-Muslims who have accepted Islam, and yet they've got their old friends. And people tell me, oh, Zakir, don't speak to non-Muslims, you lose their friendship. I've got very good non-Muslim friends also. Mashallah, respect me. You have appreciated me. Mashallah, you're a non-Muslim. So my job is to present the truth. And one more thing, Quran clearly mentioned in Surah Baqarah, chapter number two, verse number 256, like Rafid Deen, there's no compulsion religion, Truth stands out clear from error. Our job, sister, is to present the truth. Whether a person accepts it or not, it depends upon him. If Almighty God wanted everyone to accept, it's very easy. It's mentioned in the Quran in Surah Yunus, chapter number 10, verse number 99. If he wanted, he could have made all the human beings believers. Very easy. Kun kun, very easy. But where is the test? Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Mulk, chapter number 67, verse number 2. Allazi khalaqal mawta wal hayata. It's Allah who has created death and life to test which of you is good in deeds. So this life, sister, is a test for the hereafter. Now when a person realizes the truth, everything you realize the truth, you don't follow. You may follow 80%, you may follow 50%. There are very few people who follow 100%. Even all the Muslims don't follow 100%. Some Muslims may have bad habits, yet... They are Muslim. So what have realized, sister, the major points of oneness of God and believing in the last and final messenger, 
and believing in the hereafter, these two, three points are the most important, sister. And that's the same thing I'll tell you, sister. You ask me the question, I'll ask you the same question. Then what is taking you so much time to accept the truth, sister? Dr. Zakir Naik, I would just like to tell you something, that here, with your blessings, I accept Islam and repeat the kalma. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulallah. MashaAllah, sister, may Allah, may Allah bless you. And Allah come to Jannah, inshallah. And welcome you, sister. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and come to Jannah, ameen. Uh, may we have the next question from the brother in the front. Firstly, sir, congratulations for arranging this program. I am advocate Shivaji Sapkar from Bid, Maharashtra. This program is peace for all over. I get the opportunity to ask question, but my question is not related to Quran. Yes, sir. Yes. Sir, there are lacks of Marathi speakers. I also Marathi. What is the role of IRF, means Islamic Research Foundation? What IRF doing for Marathi or non-Muslims? That was a very good question. Since we are living in the state of Maharashtra, he's asking what are we doing as far as Marathi is concerned? And what are we doing for non-Muslims? As far as Marathi is concerned, I'll be very frank with you. We want to do but we aren't doing much. There are some of my books being translated to Marathi by others, because I can understand Marathi, but I can't speak Marathi. I mean, I should be able to do it. We are trying to make our children speak many languages, but I can understand Marathi, but I can't speak. A little bit, I can, but I don't master the language. Maybe then I would have given lectures in Marathi also. But we have some speakers in IRF who give lectures in Marathi. We are Brother Abdul Ghafur Qureshi. Whenever there's a request to speak in Marathi, we send him. So what we are doing, we are training people to speak and convey the message of peace in different languages. The training program is in English. And many people know three, four languages. So the training program is in English, sometimes in Urdu and Hindi. Then he goes, if he's coming from South Africa, from Africa, then he speaks in the African language. Many people are coming from other parts of the world. From Malaysia, they have come. They have come from USA. They have come from Singapore, from Saudi Arabia, from Philippines, Tagalog. I don't know Tagalog. What I do? I convey the message in English. I tell the people to convey in Tagalog. I am requesting you, brother, convey my message, what you have learned here, heard here, to those people who know Marathi. You'll be doing a favor to me. Yes, yes, sir. Inshallah. That's the first question. Come to the second question. What are we doing for non-Muslims? Again, we aren't doing much. Whatever limited we can do, there's so much to be done. The organization is big, mashallah. We have got more than 2,000 volunteers. Yet I'm saying we are doing nothing. We are a very small organization. Very small. We have organized this conference. We are giving first chance to non-Muslims. Because you are a VIP guest, a special guest. You, today, are more closer to me than the other Muslims. Why? Because I have to convey that Allah will ask me on the Day of Judgment. 
Have I conveyed the message or not? So I'm trying my level best to convey personally on this level. Furthermore, this conference, the 10-day conference, we have invited non-Muslims and we mentioned in the posters, all faith welcome. People of all religion welcome. But in question and session, we give them first preference. We give them priority. So that the doubts can be cleared. Even the Muslims have got doubts. The Muslims, they get angry with me. Mother Zakir, what about us? Afterwards, kal dekh lenge, no problem. Kal matab, abhi kal ne, abhi dal din ke baad dekh lenge. So what we have, besides giving the message here, maybe the tens of thousands of people here now, mashallah, tens of thousands of people, but there are more than 60 million people watching live. But yet, we are doing nothing. IRF per se, Islam Research Foundation, what we should do, we are doing very little. But we are trying our level best. And we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that may accept our humble effort that we are doing in trying to spread his message to the world. Hope that answers the question. Wish you all the best for your organization, sir. Uh, yes, brother, the next question. My name is Sahil. I'm a graphic designer. I'm a poet. May peace be on you, Dr. Zakir. I always wanted to say this. I've got a chance by God's grace today. I love you, Dr. Zakir. I love you very, very much. And I thank you. May peace be on you too, brother. And I thank you I too love you, brother. I too love you, brother. Thank you. And I thank you for the ample amount of knowledge I've got going through your lectures from my friends, from my sister, Nagma. And there's a slight bit of confusion uh, between the word of God and the people who believe the concept of Judgment Day. Like, there's a small question. We believe, like, like the Muslims believe, that on the Judgment Day, the dead will be put life in them. And some of the Muslims believe that it will be on the first night in the grave that the dead will be put life and there'll be azab and questions and answers in, in the grave. So I just wanted to clarify this. That's it. The brother asked the question that the difference of opinion, will life be put on the Day of Judgment on the day of judgment resurrected, or will it be in the cover? Brother, if you read the hadith, there is mention of the azab of cover. Allah says in the Quran, in Surah Imran, chapter number three, verse 185, that every soul shall have a taste of death, but the final recompense will be on the day of judgment. This life is just mere chattels of play and deception. But the final, hisab kitab, final judgment, is on the Day of Judgment. What we have to do, we may get part of the punishment in this world, part of the reward in this world, part of the reward in the Qabr, part of the Azab in the Qabr, but the final, ultimate judgment is on the Day of Judgment. The final total of good and bad will be recorded on the Day of Judgment, and then, based on your deeds, you will either go to heaven or hell. Some of this will be given in this world, some in the grave, but the final accounting will be on Day of Judgment. Hope that answers the question. Thank you. Yes, sister. Hi, I'm an American student studying culture and theology, and I have a question. You said Jesus never claims his divinity, and that Jesus was only here for Jews. But the Bible says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replied, yes, it is as you say. And then in Matthew 28, 
18 through 20, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Sister has quoted two verses from the Bible. The first one from mistaken, you said that Jesus claimed that you are son of God. Did you say that, sister? Yes, sir. Son of God. And second, she said that Jesus said, go to all the nations. What she's quoting is the ending last portion of the Gospel of Matthew. If you go earlier, sister, just mention the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 15, verse number 24. He says to his apostles that I have been sent not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What you quoted according to the scholars of the Bible, what they say, that is an interpolation. But whether it is or not, I don't argue. But then there's a contradiction in the Bible. The Bible clearly mentions in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 10, verse number 5 and 6, Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, says to the apostles, go ye not into the way of the Gentiles, go ye not into the way of the non-Jews, the Hindus, the Muslims, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As far as the first question is concerned, that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, said that I am the son of God. Sister, do you know, in the Bible, God has got sons by the tons. Adam was the son of God. Ephraim was son of God. Israel was son of God. All those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. So if you are a righteous person, you are a son of God. If I'm a righteous person, I'm a son of God. That is the language of the Bible. As far as calling son of God to a righteous person, I do agree that since prophet Jesus was the messenger of God, he should be called the son of God. But what do the Christian missionaries say? No, 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 no. He is not a normal son. He is the begotten son. And they quote the Bible, Gospel of John, chapter number 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So what we have to realize that this verse of the Bible, begotten son, According to the 32 scholars of the highest eminence of 50 corporate denominations, if you read the RSV, Revised Time Version, they say this word begotten is interpolation, is a concoction, is a fabrication, and the throne of the Bible. So Jesus is not the begotten son, because begotten means it belongs to an action of animals of lower level. So he is verily the son of God. Son meaning a righteous person, we have no objection, but he is not the begotten son. He begets not, nor is begotten. I hope that answers the question. Jazakallah khair, we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for making this program possible. We know you have many questions, but there are time limitations to the program. We thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not only for making this program possible, but for creating this opportunity for a better understanding on the topic for the millions of people too, other than those present here watching us on television, who may, inshallah, share some of the learnings from this talk and question and answer sessions to others less aware, for them to gain better understanding and hidayah too. We thank all who have contributed and made this program practically possible for all present here today and for its telecast and those who have come to attend this program. Jazakallah khair. Iqra'u 
اصبح بصوتك اسمع لك وانا اقرا كلام الله داوي نفوسنا لنحس في اعماقنا اعماقنا الايمان فإذا وعى القرآن